Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Okay, welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez. I've got a great guest with me today, my friend Cody Marks-Bailey. Cody, thanks for being here with us uh, today on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, I want to let everybody know uh, we are actually at Strikes Cigar Lounge right now in Boca Raton, Florida. If you watched or listened to episode 120 where I had Ronak Patel on, I was here as well with Ronak, although uh, we weren't smoking cigars on the episode. Um, I was smoking cigars on episode 123, I believe it was, with um, Uwe and Lynn. Yeah. And actually, no, that was episode 122. And then 123, I was also in their cigar lounge at Antigua Cigars with um, Ben Fossen of Adoptees with Guatemalan Roots. So I'm sorry for those that don't want to watch me smoke cigars on camera. But for those who do enjoy a good cigar, uh, maybe go grab a cigar right now. If you're if you're listening to this, put it up on YouTube. You could smoke along with us as well. But I do want to thank our friends here at Strike Cigar Lounge in Boca Raton, Florida, one of the places I actually come uh, most frequently, uh, especially when I'm in Boca. I'm just up the road here. Um, so a special shout out as well to one of their managers, Chris Hayes, for allowing us to record here from uh, Strikes. And and Cody's been here before, but yeah. he doesn't live. In Florida, but when he's in South Florida, he's usually here with us as well. Absolutely. So, Cody, uh, we got a lot to talk about. Oh boy. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, it's hard to introduce Cody because he's a man of many talents and many adventures, and so we're gonna just have a nice, good uh, smoke. We've had a lot of good conversations yeah. over cigars, so I always feel like these should be recorded at some point. <laughs> um, so, Cody's been really involved in all things crypto uh, uh, technology, blockchain. NFTs. Uh, we're going to get into a story of the creation of hashtags that was not created by Twitter. We might be looking at where it was created right here. Um, also, uh, Cody is from the great country or republic or, or state of Texas, Free however, state of Texas. You, <laughs> however you uh, want to define it these days. Uh, and But he doesn't live there. For the last few years, he's lived in Mexico City. And he's also traveled and worked all around the world. Uh, we actually met in Guatemala, mm-hmm. uh, thanks to the Universidad Francisco Marroquin and some of their programs. I'm actually uh, donning one of the shirts right now from UFM. Um, one of the things I love about UFM, and the reason why I had, they have this logo here with the question mark, is they challenge their students to always be asking questions. And even when they find the answer, those answers usually lead to more questions. More questions. So, Cody. Um, sure. What is the blockchain? <laughs> oh boy! Oh boy! Um, is that where we're gonna start? All right. So, what is a what is a blockchain? A um, blockchain started out as uh, as Bitcoin. It's a it's a distributed ledger or a you can really think of a blockchain as a <clears throat> as a computer. Anytime you see the word blockchain, think computer. Uh, it's a decentralized computer, which means that it's not bound to one set of hardware. It's uh, it's distributed across many many you know. Anywhere from from two nodes being distributed, or all the way up to hundreds of thousands of nodes. Uh, Wait, what's a node? A node is a computer. It's a okay. it's a, an entity on a network, and um, and we're able to sort of create this uh, fault tolerant um, computer that exists um, amongst all of those computers. So it's it's sort of a one one layer up above, kind of like the internet. You know, the internet is omnipresent throughout the throughout the yeah. world. So are these blockchains. So if if one machine goes down or half the machines go down, the network still stays up. Is so, 
Is that like the cloud? How is that uh, related? No, the, the cloud is is more for for centralized. Or sorry, um, instead of you running your own hardware and having your own server closet in your building, you basically say, "Hey, I'm going to let AWS, you know, Amazon, or or Google, or one of the large providers." manage the hardware for yourself. So you never see the hardware, you're never charged for the hardware, you just pay for what you use. And that's that's the cloud. Um, and that came from basically how you would create these network diagrams. You'd have this, when you created this network of interconnected pieces of your, of your uh, system, there'd be this little cloud that you'd put up and say, well, we just have a bunch of computers in this in this little fuzzy area here. We don't really know where they are. We don't really care. We just know that they're there. Okay, so the blockchain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still, uh, it's hard to, uh, for the average person sure. to understand what it is. So, um, how is the blockchain impacting our lives now, and how will it be impacting our lives more in the future? You know, right now, uh, it, I would say that it's probably not affecting our lives very much. Uh, when you look at the general public, either in the United States or globally, uh, some places it's it's it has more traction than others. Places where it's more needed. Um, but let's so what, what kind of places is it more needed? Yeah, let's well let's break that apart because yeah. there's there's you know just like um, just like cars, there's many different types of cars. There's many different types of blockchains, and some cars are used for going fast. Some cars are used for moving people safely. Some cars are used for um, you know deliveries, and so they're all very different types. And so I think it's it's important to look at that. The most popular, the most uh, iconic is Bitcoin, which was the first. It was a first generation blockchain created in around 2010. Uh, so we've got 13 years now of Bitcoin being around. And what Bitcoin does is it um, it looks a lot like a store of value or a lot like digital gold. There's only 21 million coins that will ever be created. Uh, approximately 19 million have been minted right now. And there's a slow release curve of, of how those those last few, you know, 2 million Bitcoin get released into the system. And there's no single person or entity. Bitcoin is not a company. Bitcoin is not a... Um, there's no, there's no IP. There's no, no one owns this. It really is a, a public good. And uh, and and the way that that is used is sort of the store of value. And so you look at places like, you know, Venezuela or Argentina, or you know, many different governments throughout the world. Zimbabwe. Um, there's uh, all across Africa, all really all across the, the developing world. Um, you've got um, uh, currency problems. You've got. Well, actually, you have currency problems all over the world right now because central yeah, it's, just, it's just who has the worst currency right, problem, right? It's, right. Yeah, yeah. Who's the, who's the we least. think there's a lot of currency problems in the United States, and yeah. then I go to Argentina, and it's the dollar yeah. is so strong there. Yeah, fifty percent inflation year over year. Yeah. I mean, think about that. The half your year goes to just thwarting off what the government's doing to you. So, um, so Bitcoin has got a lot of traction there, and and a lot of the currency, a lot of the, these blockchains that create these currencies. Um, that have more of a store of value versus a utility. It's probably good to separate those two. So a um, so Bitcoin has, has got a lot of traction in places like you know like we just talked about Argentina being a, a prime example. And what that allows people to do is to get around their government's controls on sending that value back and forth. So if they want to import or export or just hold value, right? Because Bitcoin, you know, it is it is volatile, but it may not be as volatile as what's going on in their own country. So really, mm-hmm. it's a it's a hedge against that. Um, the fact that there's only 21 million coins that will ever be made, and that's a that's a pretty hard number. That's gonna be really hard to convince everybody that holds, you know, everybody that holds Bitcoin to say, hey, let's let's make more. It's like, mm, if I'm holding some, I don't want to create more. So you've taken the the decision making and put it in the hands of the holders, right? So if the American people were to vote on what they what you know if they want the, the money printers in Washington to do, 
we'd probably vote against that. We'd say, no, 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 I don't want to print anymore because that devalues what I have. So this is a very, very simple economic yeah. equation. And so at least you have some sort of guarantee there that, that you're not going to get you know, uh, screwed over by a, a third party. Um, that's, that's, that's where we're seeing it mostly because you need that store value. You need, you know, and gold is not, not very easy to, to come by. You can't really uh, fractionalize it. You have to physically hold it and protect it. So like putting it in your, you know, under, your, under your mattress isn't really a good way of, of, of doing that. Um, but it has a lot of the same properties as gold. Yeah, um, so same properties, but like you said, it's, uh, Bitcoin is not physical, it's digital. Right, right. Um, is there a chance that somebody could steal your digital property? Um, yes, they, they, they could, only that, but, but that has to do with you protecting your private key. And so all of these, um, all of these uh, systems these blockchain systems use cryptographic uh, algorithms, these, these mathematical equations that have been around since the 1970s. A lot of the same, you know, these are, they've been modified and, and improved by then. But I'll put it this way. If you have a private key, and then, so a private key is private. It's very important that, that you keep your private key private. That's why we call it that. Yeah. Then you have a matching public key that's derived from that private key. So if you were to, if you were to forget your public key or you were to you know, uh, lose it or whatever. As long as you had your private key, you could always generate the public key from it. That's a very important piece. Now, in order for someone to unlock your tokens or move them to a different account, you have to use the private key to sign a message to the blockchain to allow access to move those coins to somewhere else. Okay, so a private key is 256 bits. Well, that doesn't seem like, I mean, 256, that doesn't seem like a whole lot of security. Right. Well, 256 bits is a number larger than the number of atoms in the known universe. Wow. So now you're having to use computational energy to find and, and, and look at each individual you know, atom in the universe, think about that, um, and, and try to guess and see if that is the right, you know, the right key. So, so it's virtually impossible. I mean, is it possible? Yes. But even with quantum computing and, and, and everything we have that we know, it's just not going to happen. Even uh, when AI gets really good, they're not going to figure out my key. Yeah, yeah. Even AI. The the thing is that that the way that you store the key, the way you protect your private key. Remember, you need to mm -hmm. private key is private. You don't share that with anybody because mm -hmm. anybody that has that can move the move move your coins or move your your value. Yeah. So, you know, if you if you were to write that on a piece of paper and leave it on the kitchen counter, it's not very safe. But if you were to, there's ways you can protect that key. You can even encrypt the private key with a password, so it makes it a little harder. I'm a big fan of security through obscurity by hiding that key somewhere really, really obscure where no one would ever even think to look for it. So, okay, so we talk about Bitcoin mm -hmm. being the original cryptocurrency. Um, I, by the way, I stepped into just a few days ago the Bitcoin conference <laughs> that takes place in Miami. It's the largest Bitcoin conference in the world. Uh, I wish I could have stayed longer. It's like a three or four day event, but I was only there about uh, four hours. <laughs> um, but a lot of, a lot of, what really fascinated, fascinated me the most was the entire economy surrounding Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And I think this is maybe what you're getting into a little bit. But let's go back to Bitcoin as the first digital yeah. currency and the people who are what you might call Bitcoin maximalist. Yeah, maxis, yeah. Because there's all sorts of other cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. And what I'd like you to talk about is Bitcoin in relation to those other cryptocurrencies mm -hmm. the d other digital currencies in a sense yeah and also ethereum yep um and where ethereum fits into that as well sure so bitcoin was the first and so naturally any any first generation technology that's that's new right so this is the first blockchain is going to naturally be 
uh, pretty simple and pretty. It's, it's proving a point. It's going to do. It's not going to be very sophisticated or even very fast. And there's probably a lot of design uh, mistakes that that are made when designing it. Now, Bitcoin wanted to do one thing and one thing really well, and that was basically create some coins, create scarcity, and then introduce it to the public. You've got 10 minute block times, so every time transactions are moved, it takes 10 minutes for them to, to settle, mm. right? So it's not, so we're talking about 10 minutes, like that's a, a new block is created. So an update to wow. the ledger is created every 10 minutes. Um, and then, a, and, and when I saw Bitcoin, I thought, well, oh, that's pretty cool, how the network works and how it's secured and, and the, the mechanics around it. But I wasn't, uh, there's not much you can do with Bitcoin from, a, from an engineering standpoint. You can't create robust applications. You can't be very creative. It's pretty rigid, but that's great. because It's it, rigid, meaning it's got a singular purpose right, as and a it, yeah, currency. Right, and it, ha- and it has very little functionality outside of that, which is great for a store of value. But if you wanted to create, say, um, some robust governance tools so you can create uh, an organization online and, and do voting or do you know, uh, escrowing and all kinds of financial operations, Bitcoin's not the way to do it. Now, the Bitcoin maxis will say, yes, but we have these other, and, and yes, they, they are doing a good job at solving those. But Ethereum came out as a second generation blockchain, which introduced smart contracts. And a smart contract, really, the name smart contract is probably a, a bad name for it, for, for someone just getting into this. And a smart contract is basically an application that someone can publish onto the blockchain. And, and an application is really just a set of logic. If this happens, then do that else do this and there's you know that's just general uh, very very simple programming and we're not doing anything large like you know creating movies or, or processing text or, or doing anything near AI but just simple things like if you have more than 10 10 units of this currency do this if it's less do something else you know very very and so ethereum gave us the ability to create these smart contracts wow that's where I got excited I was like, okay that's a platform I can actually start creating on. As an engineer, I wanted to do that. Um, and Ethereum, you know, did a really great job. Ethereum's it, also a coin. Uh, Ethereum is, yeah, yeah. And the reason why you need, um, so if you look at Ethereum, you have smart contracts. You're like, hey, well, it just seems like it's, like it's the it's a, it's a knockoff of Bitcoin. Yes and no. There's um, Ethereum, I don't think anybody really looks at it as a store of value because that's not the way it was designed. It was designed for utility. I'll give you an example. So back in the 1970s, if we had put a small tax on email, right, just a one cent, you had to pay one cent to the network to send an email. We wouldn't have spam today. Oh my gosh. Right? Yes. So you need to have... I want everybody to be taxed one cent. That's the only tax I want. Yeah, because you and I, you and I at maximum send 20 emails a day, right? So it's 20 cents. You would pay 20 cents a day not to have spam, right? So what it does is it, it creates an economic disincentive for people to spam the network, the disincentive. So these entire, all of these systems, all of these blockchain systems um, are set up with, incent- they're all incentive-based design to, de- to, to incentivize people to use it correctly or de-incentivize people to, to spam or to abuse the network. And so when you build that into it, that's where Ethereum comes from. You've got to pay for your, what's called gas. Imagine having gasoline. You've got to have a little bit of, 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 yeah. of, of you know, um, incentive to, to, to pay your, to use the network because the, the computer can only do so many transactions per second. Can only do, it can only perform so much logic every six seconds, um, and so you need to be able to pay for that. So if you want to spam, you know, spam the network with with, you know, phony transactions or or tr- just to clog the network, well, the network's going to say, "Yep, yeah, you're just going to pay us until you run out of money. We'll drain you, and everybody, you know, we're we're all going to share what you're paying as you spam the network." So 
Um, that's where Ethereum came along, and Ethereum proved that these things could be built, they could be secured, they could be functional and scale to some extent. So Ethereum's, uh, like you said, second generation mm -hmm. technology can be, it's, it's really more useful other than a coin, other than a currency. Right. It, it is also a currency. Right. It, well, it, yes and no. You it's could, a store of value. Uh, no, it, 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 it's much more like a commodity. So if, okay. if I wanted to come to Strikes here and buy a, a cigar, I could technically pour out a little bit of oil from a, from a barrel of oil and say, well, eh, there's about $12 for my cigar, right? And, and then pour it into their <laughs> jug and now they have it. Oil has value because it has utility, right? So it actually performs a function. And that's a really important um, distinct, like, distinct factor between Bitcoin and Ethereum. With Ethereum, you actually use that, that Ether or F, E-T-H is the call sign, um, for, for paying your, your gas fees. So, it, so when I use oil, oil has value because it has utility, right? Mm -hmm. You can actually you know, push your car down the road. You can make plastics. There's all, there's all kinds of functions. Now, if all those went away, oil wouldn't be worth anything. Like salt water is not worth anything because it doesn't have a utility or it's so abundant that it you know, doesn't have any value. So today, 2023... Mm -hmm. Um, why I think you believe this, mm -hmm. but why is Bitcoin as a well, let's just say as a value, mm -hmm. uh, more uh, why is it more, better than Ethereum? Um, as a store of value, yeah. I mean, or, would you say that Bitcoin, if I'm an investor mm -hmm. or or just somebody that yeah, wants to put you know a percentage of my uh, wealth in mm -hmm. those in bit in other assets, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever. If I'm looking at cryptocurrencies, mm -hmm. and by the way, maybe before we step into that, this is not financial advice. This, this is not financial. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm actually just uh, yeah, little disclaimer yeah, there. Yeah. We're not financial advisors. Uh, Far you from talk, it. You could talk to our friend Bob Rubin, <laughs> but I don't even know if he'd get into all all this. Uh, but Bitcoin, Ethereum, there are also a lot of other cryptocurrencies. I was at the Bitcoin conference, and yeah. the people at Bitcoin conferences, especially everybody on stage, uh, they refer to Bitcoin and everything else as, um, excuse me for the, uh, if you have kids listening, pause it right now, <laughs> Bitcoin and shitcoin. Yeah, yeah. And that's because the, the Bitcoin people, and I'll say this right now, the Bitcoin maxis, um, they're not wrong. They're everything they say, they're not wrong. They're just, I just feel that they are looking at, at a singular set of objectives. And anything outside of those objectives, they don't care about. So they, they of course, make fun of everything else that doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't fall in line with the store of value and the replacement of currency. But I'll say that, that these decentralized technologies, which is really, you've got sort of decentralized technologies, the, the banner for all of these types, one type of decentralized technology are blockchains, and one mm -hmm. type of blockchain is Bitcoin. Bitcoin has somewhere between 50 and 65 percent uh, dominance in the in the in the the, the uh, value of all cryptocurrencies. So it's the king of coin, and, and that's fine. But there's so many different things that we can be doing with blockchains beyond just a store of value. And so you know, creating these things called DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, DAO, DAOs mm -hmm. as they're called. And DAOs are, that's kind of the future of where things are, are moving um, into these, these online organizations that are, that can be permissioned. So you know, in other words, it's a, it's a closed group of people. Maybe mm -hmm. you need to have some sort of qualifier to get in, or it can be an open, you know, open club that anybody can join through, through a uh, tokenized uh, membership. And so you allow for, and these are, you know, blockchains are, are internet, these are 
truly global systems. There's no there's no such thing as a uh, United States only blockchain because there's no way to, to we've we've detached location from you know where the where these internet packets come from. So you really and there's no centralized there's no company behind these. So you can't say well only American citizens. Well, you can't you can say that you have to do some sort of AML KYC if you were that worried about it. But then you need you know their name and their last name and their you know address and all that kind of stuff and their social security number and all that, which kind of defeats the point for these decentralized systems. You might as well just do a normal club if you have all that information. Yeah, so I wanna ask a few more questions in this realm because one thing that's on a lot of people's minds when they think of Bitcoin, especially people who are paying a little bit more attention, mm-hmm. is this huge FTX scandal that just happened yeah and so in some sense i think in the broader world Mm -hmm. when the people saw sam bankman freed uh who was the head of ftx and the whole all the scandals that went on there Mm -hmm. and a lot of money that was lost a lot of people lost a lot of money a lot of investors lost money um uh, can you tell us a little bit about the scandal and then i you know and then basically can you parse that out in terms of did that totally defeat Bitcoin or any kind of other cryptocurrencies. Um, yeah, that's a that's there's a lot going on there. If you know anything about the the FTX story, there's a lot going on there. Um, there's a lot of conspiracy theories. There's a lot of you know connections to government and all that. I'd like to get away from that stuff and really sure. focus more on the crypto side. The um, what happened was you had a lot of people that didn't know much about blockchain, which you know I'd say ninety eight percent of the public probably knows very little. Mm-hmm. And, um, That's why we're here on the Agents yeah, of Innovation podcast. Exactly. Yes. Um, and what they did was they trusted a guy in the Bahamas to hold their their money, and they trusted that that and that was Sam. That Sam and FTX, and they were trusting Sam to do to be a, a good steward of their of their money. Now the reason why they were in the Bahamas was because we have very little crypto uh, regulation clarity in the United States. Mm. So there's there's sort of a um, I guess I do have to get into a little bit of politics, but the United States hasn't really made it safe or easy to operate in crypto in the United States. I think the the United States sees crypto as a potential threat. I think it's a much larger threat than they'll ever let on, but they are actively being hostile towards it. And by simply giving no clarity, by saying no comment, you need clarity when you're operating, in, especially in the financial space. You need to have clarity on what to do. Um, Coinbase has been a really good steward. Um, I would say Coinbase is a, is a, they're a public trade company. They've got all the controls. They're U.S. based. They're they're run. Um, and Coinbase is like a purse. Uh, Coinbase is a uh, an intermediary between you and the blockchain. So if you don't feel comfortable holding your coins, you don't want to have that responsibility. It's like, oh, that's a little too much responsibility right now. I don't feel comfortable with it. I'll use a custodian to hold my coins. Would that be the same as like I have the wallet of Satoshi? Um, no, so that's a, that would be a uh, you would have the private keys yourself. I have it myself. Yeah. Whereas with Coinbase, you have a, a username, like an e- use your email address right. to log in with a password, and you and you would you should always use two factor authentication. Yeah. So if somebody has your email address and your password, they also have to have your phone physically to generate the code that changes every so thirty seconds. So FTX was kind of an equivalent, like a, yeah. a, a to Coinbase. To Coinbase, but it was offshore in the Bahamas. Like yeah. like and where's it, Coinbase? Coinbase is based out of San Francisco or Silicon Valley, somewhere out there. Yeah. Yeah. And they're publicly traded. I mean, which means that they now have the controls. They've got reporting, and that's a that's a first class. And FTX order. was operating in a the little, Bahamas, a little more rogue. Yeah. Is that the best way to say yeah, it? I mean, yeah. like, okay. It, I mean, if 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 
somebody you didn't know said, "Yeah, I live in you know I live in some Caribbean island. Give me your money." And he was spending part of his time in Hong Kong at the time too, right? Well, the yeah the you know um, what hurts the United States or what can can add any extra com- uh, uh, complexity or or um, you know. Of course, that you know, there's a there's a yeah. there's a cold war going on between the, the the east and the west right now. To make to put yeah. it mildly, I, without naming names, but um, yeah. So any any time you could leverage against the other person, they're going to do that. So the 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 uh, the west, the east is is definitely poking the bear. So it's interesting because I want to just take a step back, and I know again, you and I are not financial advisors. Um, I do teach some economics now and then, but I, I wouldn't say I, I'm. Uh, I can spell an economics, right? <laughs> but to me, what's really interesting about Bitcoin, and actually, I read I think it's Michael Saylor's book, The Bitcoin Standard. Is that yeah. he co-authored yeah. that? I think. Yeah. And so somebody told me to read that book to understand Bitcoin really well. And yeah. what I really like about that book is the first chapter or two. Mm-hmm maybe I can't remember how many chapters, but really helps the reader understand what is money, Mm -hmm. like where it came from. You have to go back in order, in order to understand and and unravel the, the the actual purpose and, and, and brilliance of Bitcoin. You can't just start in 2010 and go read the Satoshi white paper. You really have to go back to the Medici brothers in Italy and like, even going back further than that yeah. to where you had like people in the mountains trading shells because they were mm-hmm. they needed something scarce or people on the coast that were trading fossils from the mountain you know you had to have like geography was the big barrier to, to scarcity but you have to understand like what does that mean and like why does a doll you know you have to ask yourself why do i think that a, if you're if you don't believe in bitcoin and you think it's 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 junk it's going to go to zero you're you're you're, you're anti bitcoin you've got to ask yourself well why do you not trust this but you trust the money printers in Washington. It's like, well, and there's a, there, that, 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 there's a good reason for that. And, I don't, and I'm not saying that dollars don't have value. I'm not one of these guys that says, you know, we all need to move away from that. No, you've got, you've got the stability of the U.S. market. You've got, you know, the, the guns. You've got the, the real estate of the United States that backs that. You've got the, you know, the uh, liquidity around the world. It's the, it's the reserve currency. So, yeah, even though we're experiencing what they report is 7%, it's probably closer to 10 uh, inflation, it's still better than anything else out there. And if you want to move massive amounts that's not volatile, volatility meaning you don't know when it's going to happen, at least with inflation, it's sort of a, a steady march. So, you you know, it's never going to, we're not going to have a, we're not going to get into June and all of a sudden we have 30% inflation. Like, I think we could probably agree with that. Yeah. Uh, we're looking at, we're <laughs> looking at a default possibly. So we don't play well, this back. Yeah. I better not make that. Yeah. We're, we're days ahead of the, the possible. Default. Well, you never know what's going to happen, but I think, you know, looking back over the last at least 100 years, the modern economy, the dollar is probably the best place to be. Well, what's interesting, yeah, because a lot of t- we're experiencing inflation in the United States and <clears throat> over the last year or two. We've always experienced it, 2%. Right. But right, I mean, like higher a- amount. But it's interesting because I just got back from Argentina about a month ago, and it's like, whoa, the dollar is really strong down here, and their currency is really crap. Right. Right. And they have horrible monetary policy. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of issues that go into that. Yeah. So you and it's do- rec- and it's recognized by other by other people. The dollar. I mean, yes. everybody. I mean, anywhere you go in the world, they all know what their currency is against the dollar. Yeah. Like but you, what I- you don't you don't know what your what your you know against the ruble or against the the Turkish uh, lira or whatever you know that you don't you don't yeah. follow those kind of things. Right. And you know the United States has has 
you know, it's not, we're not a perfect country. Plenty of plenty of things uh, we can criticize here, uh, but we, you know, we do like we do have a pretty strong, stable system, rule of law, things like this. Right. Um, that really keeps a lot of these things in check. And one of the things I found, uh, people can go back to my episode. I believe it was 121 with uh, Fernando Fernando Pontaza. He started the first venture capital fund in Guatemala, which is really great. But one of the things he even said to me on there was he said, even though we are based in Guatemala, and this is the first venture capital fund in Guatemala, 60% of our investments are in companies in the United States. That's where the market is. Right. And he said, of the remaining 40%, most of that is in, in, or is in Latin America, is in Mexico, mm-hmm. because that's also seen as the next you know, most stable economy. Mm-hmm. And then he said, then it's spread out in a couple countries here and there, including Guatemala. But he said, I got to be honest with you, I wish we could invest more in Latin America, but the rule of law is something, you know, we have, we have fiduciary responsibility yeah. to our investors. We can't trust what's going on in a lot of these countries. So when you compare, again, we talk about a lot of the issues going on in the United States. We can, we can complain about a lot of things, but when you compare it, it still is the strongest place. And that's what makes the dollar, you know, the strongest currency and, every, and what everything is compared against. What I also, though, like to talk about when we talk economics is... When you really, you know, I, one of the things I like to tell my students, you know, we, especially uh, when I'm teaching economics, is where did this whole currency come from? Where did currency mm-hmm. come from to begin with, mm-hmm. right? For most of human history, and sorry if I delve into a little economics lesson, but <laughs> probably 95% of human history, we were hunters and gatherers, mm-hmm. right? We were tribal people. It was all about surviving that day, right? It was all about going out. You had to you had to kill what you wanted to eat, right? And and you became very tribal. And there was a lot of warfare. There was a lot of violence. Um, all these things. With that said, about only ten thousand, roughly ten thousand years ago, the the number one innovation possibly in human history before Bitcoin yeah. <laughs> was uh, was farming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dom- well, domesticating animals and, and, and wheat. Yeah, yeah. And, and so all of a sudden, when you yeah, when you domesticate animals, when you farm, when you grow crops, when you now you have land abundance. Yeah, the, the first amount, the first, the earliest point of abundance where you could free people's time up to do other things. Yeah, and then now you have a harvest period. You have things you got to protect. So let's just say I like to just break it down very simple. Um, let's say I'm harvesting and I'm growing tomatoes, and you're growing apples mm-hmm. let's actually let's call mine oranges and yeah. yours apples apples, apples to oranges. and that's where that's where the whole phrase oranges to apples right. apples to oranges came from right so we're trading and we're trying to figure out how many apples equal how many oranges right which maybe maybe with two products it could be somewhat simple zero sum yeah right but then you get bananas and then you get wheat and right. then you get blah 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 well then what happens well then you say well, where are you gonna? I want yeah, I want oranges, but you don't want apples, but you want bananas. So now I got, I'll be right back. Let me go find someone with bananas. Okay, now we can do a three-way trade, and everybody's is is. And even. what's really cool when you actually track civilization is, this is what created a physical market. Mm-hmm. So every market you enter, like if we went to um, Guatemala, and we go to the central market, yeah, or whatever, and you go and there's this massive market, and people are buying and selling a lot of goods. Think of that, but now think of it as we're trading, right? Right, and and then we're doing it in a very small geographic area. But this is what created towns, yeah. Right, and then it's what created cities, specializations, and yeah. yeah. And so now we we're not tribal, we're not warfare, we're not surviving every day. We're we've got plenty, and we're now involved in trade. But then at some point we said, "Gosh, this is getting really complicated with all these different products. Let's create a currency." Mm-hmm. 
So then you create a hard currency, right? And that becomes your, your the intermediary. Yeah. yeah. Well, the intermediary between everybody can base it off of that. Right. You can't eat these coins, but you can trade them in for things that you can eat. So you advance many thousands of years, and you have all sorts of nations developing mm -hmm. their own currencies. I mean, even here in the United States, we had colonies before mm -hmm. we were, and then we were states, and each state had their own currency. Yeah. Um, you know, what's cool is when uh, when farms had their own currency in Guatemala, yeah. there were thir thirteen uh, different different currencies in Guatemala just based on the farm saying we'll pay in this, and then the other farms would respect that, that currency. Yeah, if you come on my uh, Fearless Journeys group trip to Guatemala, we go to UFM and we spend a half a day there. And uh, my friend Wandering Luis- the halls with the, the history of all the different currents, really cool. Yeah, our friend Luis Figueroa, mm -hmm. uh, he loves to take, he does the best tours of UFM. He does. And they have that, they, yeah, we go through that hall of currency and he shows you this coffee plantation had its own currency. This shipping company had its own currency. It's really cool, and he's, and really, that, and he's really enthusiastic about it. He is, and you know what? It's funny. It's it really makes you appreciate um, that you know that 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 monetary policy mm -hmm. and why it's so important. Um, and so you can advance. And anyway, then we get to today, where Bitcoin is basically you know its own currency. And what's I guess if if I was um, talking from the Bitcoin maximalist mm -hmm. perspective or or whatever it the the nice thing about it is for bitcoin like you said it's a set amount right kind of like gold right kind of like gold yeah we're finding you know we're still mining gold but, right but it's not like tomorrow they're going to find a trillion dollars worth of gold and, and flood the market and if they did it would flood the market the the interesting about bitcoin is it is a total finite amount and it's just going to divide right 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 as, right. as it's doing and, now. and 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 it's important because you see 21 million coins well, I mean, how do you at 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 twenty six thousand, twenty seven thousand dollars per coin? It's a Cody. You can't really, like, unless I'm buying something for twenty seven thousand dollars, I can't really use that coin, can I? There's eight decimal points beyond that. Yeah. So point zero 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 one, and that's that's what's called a satoshi. So the satoshi is a, the smallest amount, and so you have eight decimal points deep, not just two like we have in dollars with pennies, but eight decimal points. Yeah, and I don't want to get too deep into politics and government, mm -hmm. but. Why would the U.S. government? So it seems like there's a mm. the government mm -hmm. uh, is is really tr um, okay. Like you said, you just gave the example of there's not it's not a set uh, like 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 uh, Sam Bankman Fried was over. Do the we box. really know how many dollars are, in, are out yeah. there? Like that, they keep that number from us. And, and there's never been a government that has been able to not hit that printer. They yeah. do it they, every every year. I've got a friend of mine that, that talks about it. And he says. Every year, Congress goes to the Fed and goes, you know, we were only supposed to spend $2 trillion, and you know what? We sold three. We, we spent three. Uh, so, can, can, you, can you help us out a little bit? And they do it every year. They've done it every year they've ever had the printer. Yeah. Because humans are incapable. And that's also, it also fluctuates uh, in relation to politics, right? Uh, well, people want to get elected, right? Yeah. Depending on, you know, all well, these they, sorts of things. Yeah, they, 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 they reward their voters with, you know, and then they go to the printer, and the printer goes, right. oh, yeah, we'll print it up for you. And it, the cycle continues, right. and there's a point where there's a point where the people start saying, you know, that like, how long is this going to go? We have thirty trillion dollars in debt in the United States. Like, how long? Where where does this end? You know, and with, right. with the U.S. withdrawing from the world, and we have a debt ceiling, and then we just raise it every year. Yeah, and we use it as a political, you right. know, uh, pissing match between the two parties to, to. So back to the crypto in in relation to government. Let's say the let's say the U.S. government. Um, why would they want to consider regulating crypto? Or there's even been talk about creating uh, an official government uh, digital currency. Right, right. So there's a lot going on there. So the government's 
power comes from its ability to tax. Mm-hmm. And uh, naturally, a government's going to want to be in charge of its own currency, right? Because it gets that get-out-of-jail-free card, right? It gets to print up more money when it needs it. Right. I wish I had money. I wish I had the ability to go to the to the Fed and just say, "Hey, can you can you print me up a couple a couple hundred bucks?" You know, I'd really appreciate that. No. And so the the the, the major banks in the United States get first access to that, and they get the the the, the fractionalized. You know, that's where we're talking about bank runs. Remember, there was like the, yeah. the when the when um, uh, Silicon Valley Bank and these other banks have been. And in some sense, it's still continuing a little bit with some. You know, you're hearing other regional banks having issues. Yeah, yeah, and and the the U.S. government's doing a damn good job at getting everybody. Hey, calm down. The banking system's fine. Don't go withdraw your money. Yeah. And as long as we don't withdraw our money, we can continue this system. Now, if everybody, if and you've seen bank runs happen before, right? And then that's where you really start pissing off the people, and they start looking for this giant exit sign that says Bitcoin. Because guess what? Those those games aren't played there. So, Cody, there's also this area in this space, like I guess you would call it the blockchain space, yeah, of NFTs. Ah, so yeah. can you explain a little bit to our audience that may not be aware of what are NFTs? Yeah, and what's been your involvement in this space? Good question. So. Um, so we have what are called fungible tokens, right? And so that's a that's a Bitcoin, that's Ether, that's most of the cryptocurrencies that you see out there, uh, and they are fract- they are they are um, fungible, which means if I have six Bitcoin and you have two, and I send you six, you now have eight, and let's say you send those six back, it's not like you sent me the exact same six that I sent you. They're fungible. Your account just says eight. It's a numbers game, right? So numbers are fungible. Um, but if I had a if I had a car. Let's say I had five cars. I had a Honda, I had a Mercedes, and I had a Bentley, right? And I sent you a Bentley, right? And then you send me back one of your Nissans. It's not that's not the same thing, bro. We're not talking about cars to cars. We're talking about I sent you a, a vehicle that was worth three hundred forty thousand dollars. You sent me one worth forty thousand dollars. So you have a non fungible asset, right? And those are anything from bonds, insurance policies, right? My insurance on on my property is different than yours. All these different financial instruments out there are different, right? Whereas like, you know, something like oil, oil is oil. Right. I mean, there's different, I guess there's different quality or, you know, qualities of oil, but um, but you have these different assets. So you need something that's non-fungible. You need a way to trade assets singularly that have a different price on it. So, so NFT it, stands for non-fungible, non-fungible tokens. tokens. And I, I was involved in the creation of the, of the NFT standard on Ethereum. Remember, you can't really create, you, you, Anybody out there that's technical, I'm not going to get into inscriptions on, on Bitcoin, so put that aside. But the first place you could create non-fungible tokens were in these con- these smart contracts on Ethereum. And we did that back in 2017. It was me and a group of guys that were up late one night discussing how to do this. And we basically spent about two months deliberating around how we're going to design these things. We released them into the public. I thought we were going to get really cool things like, well, what I think are really cool, like insurance and, and, and bonds and, and financial instruments. Um, Who knows? Inst- instead, we got monkey pictures. <laughs> and for the last five years, NFTs is synonymous with monkey pictures. These are these the NFTs you see online that are, you know, people trading these these JPEGs essentially. And so maybe we have this uh, this artwork here of all these different James Bonds behind right, us. Right, right, right. And, and that could be have a, a non fungible token behind it because it's the only one. Right, right. But if you make a copy of it, and this is where you get into like, you know, what is an MP3 worth? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, if I can copy and paste it and send it to you in an email, it's not really worth worth much. The fact that you have it and I don't, maybe there's there's some value there. It's getting access to it. Mm-hmm. But um, 
Yeah, so the, for the last you know five, six years that NFTs have been around, we've been basically trading JPEGs online. I own exactly zero NFTs. I helped create and you the helped create the standard. Yeah, I, I that's just not it's I, I literally have zero interest in the So actually by the way, that's a really interesting example, MP3s. Yeah. Um, could this be could NFTs be something that the music industry uses for no, like the way the so we we fought these wars back in the two thousand nineties and two thousands yeah, with, with Napster, Napster yeah. and then we right so Napster was centralized it was a comp, Sean Fanning made Napster Inc. and it got sued because it was a centralized entity and they could come after the head of the snake and kill the company kill the servers so uh, Bram Cohen came up with this idea for BitTorrent remember BitTorrent back in the day BitToy no BitTorrent torrents torrents yeah so okay. it was called yeah BitTorrent is the is the protocol. Well, that changed the game because now there was no one to, there was no centralized server. These were using distributed hash tables mm -hmm. to find each other, and basically, um, I would request, "Hey, does anybody have this file based on a on a, an identifier?" And I would start assembling it from all the different people, and everybody would send it to me, and then I would you know. So it was sort of this um, this huge decentral. That was the, one of the very first successful decentralized uh, networks that were digital. There's been plenty of decentralized networks that are not digital that worked in the past also getting into tribal, you know, how, how tribes work versus nation states where you have a more of a pyramid. Um, and so you look at the way that these things function, you look at how, how they, you study them, and it's really important to, 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 to study the entire, um, the entire catalog of decentralized uh, principles. So not just technology, but go back 3,000 3, years and look at decentralized organizations. Because we already learned those, those, now we're just doing them digitally. We're just putting them into code, putting them on the internet, and securing them with really sophisticated math. What do you mean by decentralized organizations? Yeah, so um, typically, you know, and especially in America, the way we're raised, we have a, you need to have a president, a vice president, a board that oversees, you know, you have this, this structure that works really well because you have humans which are fallible, right? So mm -hmm. so humans are, are, are greedy, we're, we're we're corrupted by you know by nature we have a lot of these tendencies to, to act on our own behalf and so we, we wrap them in these structures that work pretty well and with rule of law it sort of secures those things and now there's like a real penalty um, but if you had a dictator and you had a rule of law the dictator can decide any day what the rule of law right, is right well, and I've always said that the, the best form of government is a dictator <laughs> but the worst form of government is also a dictator it yeah, just depends on right. who the dictator yeah, is yeah because it depends on if you want efficiency, mm -hmm. mm. a dictator yeah. is great. Yeah. But the problem is if you have the wrong kind of efficiency, like the Holocaust. Right. Right. You, like that's bad dictator. Yeah. Right. So um, bad efficiency. Uh, so anyway, but yeah. bad outcomes in general. But, but decentralization, put, it actually divides power uh, against itself in some ways, but divides responsibility. Right. And transparency. So mm -hmm. if everybody agrees to certain rules... And everybody has a has access to those rules, and and they're set, and they cannot be changed. No one person has control over it. It's like okay, now we can operate without trust. Ah, trust. There's the first time we mentioned that word. So trust is the major. When you when you now that we're you know 40, 50 years into the internet, you can look back. Right, we now we have some clarity. The dust has settled. We look back at the internet and say, what did the internet solve? People say, well, it solved banking, it solved e-commerce. No, 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 no. It solved the communications problem. Mm, yeah. Right. The internet solved the communication. It it mail like writing letters or even fax machines. It solved all of that. The internet solved the communications problem that we had. And if you went back 50 years ago, 60 years ago, you'd say, what what communication problem? <laughs> I put in a, a piece of mail in the mailbox and it gets the guy in three days. Well, 
we look back at that now and go, good Lord, imagine waiting three days for an email to come in. So if you fast forward 30 years from now and you look backwards on blockchain, what did it solve? What was the core piece that it solved? It solved the trust issue. I can now operate peer to peer, so directly with you, with someone I don't know in the world, and I can trust that the rules are gonna be enforced mm. without having to involve a government, a court, I can trust the code. So in other words, on blockchain, code is law. And that's a really interesting point because now we have something that's enforced. You cannot break the rules. There, it's, it's physically impossible for me to send you more Bitcoin than I own. I cannot do it. Right. It's not a matter of if I do it, someone's going to catch me and I'll get penalized. How do you penalize a person that's detached from the internet? Like, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And, that, and so it's the trust issue. And that living in a trustless society, which sounds weird because it sounds like you don't have any trust, but it means that you don't yeah. have to trust people. You just trust that the code works. We've gone 12 years now, 13 years now with Bitcoin, and we haven't had any trust issues. It's yeah. worked as intended since day one. That's good. That's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. <laughs> uh, we'll have to see. 12 years is a small amount of time in the span of human history. <laughs> but you, it's, got of, you got a lot of smart Russians out there that have been looking at the code for 13 years, yeah. looking for ways to break it, and it hadn't been broken yet. That's great. Okay, so we're going to go out of the crypto space a little bit here, and we're going to talk about, we're all familiar with using hashtags, mm-hmm. um, so especially on Twitter, it's, but it's everywhere now. It's every social media platform, Facebook, LinkedIn even, mm-hmm. Instagram, you see hashtags everywhere. On every product in the, in the grocery store has a hashtag if you want to tweet about it. Yeah. yeah. So. Cody, uh, what was your involvement in the development of hashtags? Yeah, so back in 2006, we were using Twitter. This is very early on. This is when, when Twitter just got yeah. started. 2006, I got, in, I got online on, on Twitter in November of 2006. Uh, and in the sp- spring of 2007, we started seeing um, the, the, the really takeoff. People were starting to use Twitter. The early adopters were, were there. Uh, we were using this platform. And uh, it was great because I could follow my friends and we could have banter and we could talk about things. But there's a lot of noise. There's very little signal on Twitter. It's really there hard. Was to... or is? <laughs> Both. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, we've the tools have been refined and we've got better ways of screening that stuff, especially with natural language processing and, and, and heuristics and stuff. But um, what happens is like the, the the main the first use case of hashtags was in San Diego, a friend of mine, Nate Ritter, was doing some uh, voluntary work in, on Twitter, basically coordinating responses with the San Diego fires. There were these, you know, California mm, yeah. on fire every year. And they had these different um, neighborhoods that were having problems and there's fires over here. Well, with 911, you've got only so many calls they can receive. It's, it's, it's basically for, for everyday usage. But when you have an emergency that happens, that the the lines get clogged, there's not enough workers, they aren't staffed for that, right? So it's kind of an insurance play in some ways. But um, if I use the word fire on Twitter, right? So if you wanted to find out what's going on with, with the fires in San Diego, because you live there and you're concerned about your home in the hills, uh, if you just searched Twitter for fire, you'd get all kinds of stuff. I was fired today. The Chicago Fire, which was a, a, a soccer yeah. team, I believe. Um, and you get the word fire all over the place. I'm going to start a fire for barbecue tonight. Oh, the fire went out. You know, I'm yeah. fired up about something. Yeah. So it's really hard to, to tease through that. So, um, so th- that community decided to start. You, you know, it was organic. This was not directed. This is a decentralized platform. The users are, and they came together and said, we're going to use the hash the hashtag with a pound sign and put SD fire. So pound SD fire. Okay. Now, if you search for that 
on Twitter, you find everybody talking about that topic. Whether I know you or not, if your tweets are public, I can now find out information about that. Yeah. And I know the topic. I tweet, well, I don't tweet much anymore, but you know, I might be tweeting about Mexican food, about basketball, about my Texas Longhorns, and certain... You don't care about that. You just care about the one subject that I do tweet about. So hashtags allow us to sort of tease through all that information and, and pluck those out. Um, these were used and hashtags were actually used in other forms and other places like on IRC, which is Internet Relay Chat, an old chat system that's still around today, but really pioneered in the 80s. Um, we just borrowed that and applied it to the same system. It really, like to the outside, everybody's like, whoa, holy crap, you, you created it. You, know, you were the guys who created hashtags? Yeah, kind of, but it was sort of just a, I just borrowed a previous idea and like applied it to a new platform. So what's interesting is I, I was one of those guys that when I, when I first met you and I heard you were part of the creation of hashtags, and I'm like, that's so cool because it's something everybody uses, uh-huh. and here's the guy right here, <laughs> yeah. right? So, so I have a few questions about that. Sure. Because one of the things that as, as we were talking was the hashtag is the pound sign. And actually what's funny, Cody, is when hashtags were first being used, mm-hmm. a lot of times, and even myself included, I think, you might even hear people say, pound sign, mm-hmm. SD fire, yeah. right? Instead of actually, now we don't say pound sign because right. everybody's accustomed or to saying hashtag. Octothorpe is the actual technical name of that symbol. But you were telling me that, uh, tell me a little bit about coding and mm-hmm. I guess, the, I don't know, uh, computers because I'm not in that computer language <laughs> sure, sure. arena and there's so many computer languages. Mm-hmm. But you said that, oh, we chose the pound sign, but we could have chosen a lot of other symbols. Sure. So tell me why the... the Yeah, the dollar sign was already used for currencies, or now we use it to denote on 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 Twitter, you have what are called like stock symbols, yeah. and you'll see like the dollar sign, you know, MSFT for Microsoft, and that way mm-hmm. you can click on it and follow the that ticker sign. Yeah. And that way it's a little, it's married to a, to a, a dictionary that's in the stock market. Makes it a little easier. If you're talking about Microsoft itself, you might use pound MSFT. Yeah. But if you're talking about the actual stock, because you don't care about the company, you just care about the stock, you'd use a dollar sign. Well, the period doesn't make sense because we use that at the end of sentences. Sometimes we forget to put spaces. So you need to think about all these different mm, use cases. Yeah. Um, we at sign was already used. At sign is used for, for denoting a user, which is pretty much common across all, um, all platforms. Um, and you need something on the keyboard that's kind of easy to get to, right? We could have picked some obscure symbol that you know to use that would have been cute, but like, how do you actually hold down the shift key and you need a button up there on the on the numbers to to hit and um, ampersand probably not the right one so hashtag you know the, the pound sign octothorpe was the one we went with and it was used prior in other other areas so it's interesting because if if i didn't know this story i would have probably just thought twitter created hashtags because that's kind of when they first started coming about was through twitter even though it's used on a lot of platforms now yeah so you actually approached Twitter, went to Twitter headquarters. Tell me about yeah, was, how, what you brought to them, what their response was. That was March of twenty of 2007. Two years before I got on Twitter. Yeah. Um, I went to the, I mean, Twitter was just, a, they were still having the failure of scaling issues because this was a new way of, of addressing data in a very large sense. Um, and so Twitter had a really hard problem getting their systems to just keep up with the demand. And uh, I think they had maybe 20, I'm sorry, 30 or 40 employees. They had a really kind of a dingy looking workspace uh, over in South Park, San Francisco. And <clears throat> I walked in the door and said, can I have, a, you know, can I meet with some guys? I've got, I've got some technology around Twitter. This is literally just walking in off the street because 
knocking on the door. Uh, yeah, and uh, came in and talked to um, uh, Jack Dorsey and Biz Stone at a table, and it was like you could actually just walk into Twitter and talk to Jack Dorsey. Yeah, this was. I mean, they they had already made their money with uh, Blogger.com or Blogspot or one of the one of those things. This was their second venture, and they were still approachable. The community was so small, and you know, and so I walked in this kid from Texas with no real, you know, I'm not a Stanford researcher. I'm not one of the ilk that come from that area. And I sat down with him. I said, look, these, these hashtags are pretty interesting. I wrote an indexer. Um, my team's written an indexer um, to, to track these hashtags. And um, we think they're going to be useful in the future. We've already seen them used in San Diego. We think this is pretty big. We'd like to work with you or, you know, how do we collaborate? I'm a real collaborative person. I'm not. Yeah. Um, and so, and they, they said, oh, that's stupid. No one's ever going to use that. Who's going to put a pound sign in front of a word? All right, here we are, you know, about three years later, they're on every freaking, you know, shoe, shoe box and every, every commercial on TV is pat the pound sign. So I'm like, I've got a little bit of, of uh, uh, animosity towards Twitter for that because I'm like, dude, I was at your doorstep trying to tell you, like, this is going to work, but you, 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 you know, Slough me off because I. So has anybody made money off hashtags? Is it just an idea? Is yeah. It- so I always get that all, all the time. Oh wow, you must be like you must have a huge exit. No, it's like creating a new word. Right. Right. So you create a new word. You come up with a new term. Like yeah. I'm, I'm talking about like an English word, a term for a new concept. How do you monetize that? I mean, I guess you could like because you were the one of the creators, you can go on some giant speaking gig and talk to social media experts. No, thank you. And so I basically just said, okay, well, that was cool. That was a public good. It was innovation, and I gave it away. There's, and if I tried to cap, I mean, how would I? I'm asking you, how would I have monetized that? And I looked at all different ways. I made, you know, I, I had a, I made an indexer and I sold it um, back in the day, but that wasn't a. It, it's anybody could have done that, so there was no real secret sauce there. So, so you were just there sharing that this is a way <laughs> for people to do it. It's already kind of built into the code of, like tweets or, or lang- language it's just language. yeah this is language so yeah it's cool but like how like would I twitter be- didn't need or any of these platforms they didn't need permission to from do me. something yeah. to to make the hashtag thing work that the hashtag worked without twitter right like they, you, and then and they made it where you can i mean once they said oh it is actually working they made it where you can click on the hashtag and then get all the tweets that's where i think you could have made money right if you would i don't know i mean i have no idea if you well, could have but if you were the guy that Let's say you were working for Twitter, right? And oh, yeah. you were the you were the employee that raised your hand and sure. said, "Hey, I got a cool concept here." Yeah. Um, oh, great! Wow, you know what? Yeah, Cody. But, but when that's you're, great. We're going to give you a promotion, right? Yeah, I, mean, I don't know how. Now, now I'm getting go. a promotion at Twitter. Like, yeah. Good lord! Like that's yeah. not what I want. So, um, yeah. So it was just it was interesting. It was a stripe. You know, so what was Jack Dorsey like? What do you What do you think he was like? <laughs> You know, so, there's no way that some some you know 25 year old kid from Texas is going to come in here and tell me how to run my business. Like, okay, dude, all right. Well, anyway, okay. So Cody, something else kind of interesting. We're all familiar with TED Talks, oh, God. and um, it, maybe you want to explain to the audience who's not, but I don't. I think most people are familiar with TED Talks now. Yeah. Which I, I remember when TED Talks first came around, they were really cool, and I probably still share some of them now and then. Um, one of less my favorites. More. <laughs> one of my favorites is Simon Sinek, who yeah. gave the famous "Start with Why," and I guess his TED talk was so successful they said you should write a book, which is kind of funny. I think his book is great. I've used it in the Fearless Journeys Community Book Club, but it's funny. One thing I've gotten out of myself reading his book, yeah. and also I think other people have made a mention is you feel like probably just read the first 20, 30% of that book. And then it seems like he just has to add... Um, the publisher so, said it needs to be a little thicker than... Yeah, the yeah. Whereas the TED Talk was just phenomenal in 20 yeah. minutes or less or whatever. So tell us about 
You're you were also captivated by TED Talks, mm -hmm. and what did I do with that? <laughs> what did what was your response to TED Talks? Yeah, so um, I was twenty. This is around the same time as hashtags. Actually, it was like the same year. I had this like year where like two things took off. Um, I was up late one night at, at my co-working space in 2007, 2006. Were you still in Texas? Yeah, yeah. I lived in Texas until 2013. Or in, I was in Bryan College Station, a little college town. Did you go to Texas A&M? I never went to college. You never went to college? No, no. Not at all? Not one class? No, but I read all the same books. I just didn't pay to take the test. You were like Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, I guess. You weren't yeah. a janitor, though. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so, but yeah, TED so, Talks. So I'm, I'm up late one night watching these TED Talks, blowing my mind. Because back in, when they first came out, it was like some really cool stuff. And I don't think I've watched a TED Talk in the last five years, to be honest. Um, but there was some really, really great... And, and TED, the TED organization actually started in 1984. Wow. Most people don't realize that. And it was this this group of intellectuals that would get together in Monterey, California, and uh, do these things. And, and over time, it grew and grew and grew. Um, and then in 2005-ish, uh, uh, they started publishing their TED Talks online on YouTube. So people can go and and, and you know see this these ideas worth spreading it's the tagline for, mm -hmm. for Ted so I was up late one night blowing my mind wow these, you know, these really interesting concepts and, and ideas and I thought well, this seems like a conference for me like I should go to the TED conference right I mean you're you know yeah I mean you look like you have ideas worth spreading right yeah and there's plenty of them out there and so I, I was like yeah let's, okay so I go to the TED.com website and there's no it's, I see that it's coming up in February I'm like oh, cool like it's in two months that's perfect timing like serendipitously um, maybe I should uh, buy a ticket, you know. So I, there's nowhere to buy tickets on the TED.com website. So for an organization that is so well put together and so polished, they make it really hard to buy tickets to their event. Like, is mm. it, I mean, just give me a sold out if it's sold out. Don't why are you hiding it? And then I realized that there's three qualifiers. You have to be invited. It's limited to a thousand people, and it's six thousand dollars to attend. Well, Cody, living in a college town with a, with hashtags that wasn't making any money, didn't have six thousand dollars to blow on a conference. But I have a history of getting into places I shouldn't be and so I thought well I'll just show up what are they going to do right I can you know as a young kid showing up to a you know maybe I can help out hey y'all need some help I'll volunteer over here or whatever I'll just sneak in or something if you're you know you're not going to do that if you're far away you got to be at the event to actually sneak in so that was my plan I bought a ticket to, to um, Northern California uh, and I was going to go and crash the TED conference and so uh, woke up the next morning. My roommate says, you know, what's going on, man? And I said, oh, I'm going to the TED. You're going to the TED? Con how, how are you? Did you get invited? I said, no, I'm just going to show up. And he's like, yeah, of course, that's what you do. <laughs> well, I want to go. I was like, well, come on, man. It'd be fun. Like, you know, let's, you and I go out there. So he bought a ticket. We were going to stay at a friend's house. And, Plane ticket. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, we were going to buy a, uh, or we're gonna, so I, I called my friend in San Francisco and said, hey, can we crash with you for a couple of nights? Be good to see you. Yeah, come on over. What are y'all doing? Well, we're going out to Monterey for the TED I want to go to the TED conference. <laughs> All right, three, let's go. Three turned into five, turned into eight, turned into 13, turned into 20, turned into 40. Once we had 40 people, I was like, oh, crap. Like, my idea of sneaking into the TED conference isn't going to happen. 40 people can't do anything. Yeah, that's good for one or two people. Right, right. And, but it just sort of got away from me, and I wasn't – it was just an idea. It was kind of a bad idea. And so, um, and so we were like, well, crap, what are we going to do? It's like, well, guys, you know – we can't sneak into the conference now, but maybe we can just hang out in the hotel lobbies and the restaurants and the bars at night when they're out of the conference. It's a, Monterey's a small town. There's a thousand thought leaders. Might be a good place to network. And then uh, we we'll said, well, what are we going to do during the day? Like, while they're all locked up in their ivory tower, we're going to, I guess we can go to the museum or, you know, cruise down the PCH or whatever. But, hey, actually, you know what? 
we've got a bunch of people coming in of these 40 people we've got some really interesting people that are doing innovation work and in technology and science and biology and and even space and all these different places uh, space meaning like the, the early guys in SpaceX and that kind of thing mm. and uh, so we said was well, Elon there uh, Elon I don't think Elon ever showed up but I know a lot of his guys did and we had mm. we had some the PayPal Mafia was involved early PayPal Mafia or the six or seven guys that were early in, into, into Peter Thiel he, those guys were were definitely sympathetic they liked what we were doing and we had kind of a connection with that group unofficially there was never any sort of there's no paperwork there's no contracts this is all handshake and people knowing each other um, so building a tight trust network and uh, well you know so we thought well we've got all these really smart people showing up that are interested in TED well why don't we do our own conference during the day so while the while the TED conference is going on and all these thousand thought leaders that paid money and were invited are locked up in their ivory tower we'll do something out here and we'll do it sort of egalitarian we'll do it for free but we need a name God, we need a name for it well, what are we going to name it well, I mean like you know this is this, this is kind of a goofy idea to begin with we're not really taking ourselves too seriously they're named Ted Bill Bill and Ted's excellent adventure so we'll be Bill they'll be Ted they're red we're blue right so we made this whole whole thing and uh and now it's BIL? BIL. TED is three letters, we're three letters. And so we're, we're the Bill Conference, uh, Unconference, which un- unconferences are a whole, whole. you should read about that if you're interested. They're the uh, um, sort of organic creation of a conference without any structure. Yeah, and just, a, just an aside here, because conferences, you tend to have speakers and a lot of structure. Broadcasting from one person, yeah. Broad, that's a great way to say it, broadcasting from one person. What's great almost every conference I've ever been at the best part about the conference isn't the speakers it's the networking right. and you and I have both been to Antigua Forum by UFM down in Guatemala and they call the entire thing a constant coffee break yeah where you can you can flow anywhere you want it's not a speaker speaking at you it's everybody in conversation with one another yeah the real value of a conference is in the, in the halls not in yeah. the actual room you might want to go see one person talk about a, a, a certain subject, but that's that's more of a break from the from the actual network. Even when I was at the Bitcoin conference the other day, All I did go to two speakers because I was like, oh, that's it. I want to see what this person sure. has to say. But ninety percent of my time was spent in the exhibit hall, talking to people, walking around, Trade being show. introduced. Yeah. yeah, I mean, because all of, all the all the talks are broadcasted online. So if you really just wanted yeah. to see what what these certain, you could just go online and, and watch right. it. Right. And, and so, it's not like these people have only spoken there. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> they speak so, yeah, so, the Ted, so Ted's going on. We're doing our thing across the street called Bill. And now that we have a flag planted, we used a wiki, which is a anybody can access a wiki to update it. <clears throat> and the whole, the whole conference got organized online. And Wired Magazine picked us up. The um, uh, Wall Street Journal picked us up. NPR picked us up. And so now we had a problem. Yeah. We were getting too big. Like, too much attention. Too much attention. And I'm like, well, we don't really, like, this was a bad idea. The conference is happening in like six weeks. What are we going to do? So, of course, Ted heard about this because it's national news now in 2000, 2006, 2007, uh, December, January. <clears throat> and um, we got an email from uh, Ted's lawyers, cease and desist, because they were, they were pissed off that, you know. And we, th- let, me, let me be clear. We were not anti-Ted. If any of the, the you wanted to go to TED, yeah. So people that go to TED are called Tedsters, and people who go to Bill are called Builders. Ah. TED is for the people who have changed the world, and Bill is for the people who want to change the world. There's a good and there's a That's there's a, good a and yeah. there's typically a, a there's there's a very large age just you know the average age of the builder is much lower than the average age of the Tedster, 
And, uh, and so we were just filling a gap in the ecosystem that Ted had created. And so um, we got this cease and desist, and I'm like, crap, what are we going to do? Like, I don't have any money. I don't, like, they probably have really good lawyers, and I don't really know what I'm doing. This is a bad idea turned worse. You're like in your mid-20s. I have no idea what I'm doing. And so I sit on the email, for, or we sit on the email for a little while, and then um, there's the Barbra Streisand effect, which is basically really short. It's basically when, when um, you do something and it backfires on you. There's, if you go, go read the Barbra Streisand effect, you want to know the whole, the whole background behind that. Well, we sent the, the, the URL for the Barbra Streisand effect back to the lawyers. Wait, hold on. Barbra <clears throat> Streisand effect basically was there were some people doing some tours of Hollywood homes or, right? Uh, 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 helicopter. Helicopter tours. Paparazzi photographer taking photos of the lifestyles of the rich and famous in Malibu. And she tried to sue them? Right, for, for invasion of privacy, which, you know, if I'm peeking over my neighbor's fence, it's not illegal, but it's, it's, it's frowned upon. It's not, it's not yeah. morally right, but, but legally... The paparazzi photographer had every right to fly a helicopter along the cliffs of Malibu and take photos. Mm-hmm. But when she sued him, then everybody online went, wait a minute, she's, what is she trying to hide? And so everybody went to go look at the photos. It blew up in her face. So the like reverse the, effect of what she wanted to right. have. Right. Yes. So we sent them that thing and, said, and sent, we sent the, the link to the Barbara Streisand Effect Wikipedia article. Just hit reply to the, to, the, to the author. Sent that over. Never heard from him again. Basically saying, come at me, bro. Like... Really, if you, if you want to sue us, you're only going to make us stronger, and the public sentiment will be on our side because we're just a bunch of kids trying to do something cool across the street. Why are you know we're not we're not anti Ted. We have nothing. We have no bones against Ted. We're celebrating. And you weren't even making a big stink about it. You were trying to. We just... weren't making any money. Yeah. There was, this was a. It was a. Uh, anybody could come for free. We don't have this. Was, yeah, you're we, not even monetizing <clears throat> it. No, yeah. we weren't even an organization at the time. So we pulled it off, and um, we got a lot of the Ted speakers to come over to Bill because they wanted to see what the kids were doing across the street. And they gave their same talks to the unwashed masses, and it was a really, really cool event. And uh, the next year, so Ted, a lot of the TED speakers, what was, the, what were they bound to by TED? So they could give their talk. They need to if, you, if you're invited to, if you're given the privilege to talk at TED, your 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 presentation or speech needs to be debuted at TED. You can't re, you know use one you've already used before. It needs to be new information, which you know that makes sense. Yeah. TED TED can command that. But it doesn't say anything in the contract about how soon after you can give it, like the second time. Did they ever change that? Uh, maybe. I, I, ma- I imagine they did. I've been far away from Ted because for a while. you would want to allow that person to go out and keep doing what they're doing. Yeah, there's. Uh, what yeah, and if, and if you're Bill Gates, you're going to do what the hell you want anyway. Mm. Clear, clearly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so people would go to TED, give their talk, and some of them said, "Yeah, I'll go across the, cool the street ones, yeah, and one, talk." And, and, and we invited them over. Again. Yeah, and they'd come over with these giant badges and their suits and their, you know, their handlers with them and everything. And, and were some of them listening to talks at Bill? Yeah, they were a lot of, a few of them. I mean, I wouldn't say like a lot of them, but a few of them were um, really interested in what we were doing. They kind of saw the, the innovation and the, the sort of community. Collaboration. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was really cool. I mean, it was a really cool, cool time. In the, on, the wiki, on the wiki article, it said um, on our website, the wiki it basically said if you're if you're worried about you know food because we aren't getting this thing catered, maybe you might want to bring a sack bring lunch your own. or bring two for somebody else who didn't think about it. Bring right? your own chair, bring your own food. Yeah, or bring, bring two maybe for somebody else. You know, like there's a there's a, a, a communal thing here. So people from all over the world came to Monterey for the first bill, and they brought. I mean, people brought extra Wi-Fi, they brought extra gear, they brought tents. Wow. They they just contribute. You know, and somebody showed yeah. up with a cake. Somebody showed up with. You know, hey, I make beef jerky in my garage. I brought a bunch of bags for everybody to. to sh- it was a really communal. And and to give the talks, how could somebody give a? Mm. Could anybody give a talk at Bill? Uh, 
Technically, yeah. Um, and what happens is there's sort of a natural filter when you don't promise people things. Certain people go, ooh, I like that. I like the, the messiness. I like this. I'm not guaranteed. There's no ticket. There's... And so this, like, if, if, if somebody was like, well, I need to know who's speaking before I show up, maybe you should stay home, right? And so this is more of a celebration of ideas. And so what you do at, a, at an unconference, we had these giant, um, if you go to Home Depot, you can get these shower boards. It's like literally the, the, the uh-huh. cheap, it's you know eighth inch sheets of, um, it looks like a whiteboard basically. They're mm-hmm. real cheap and you can just throw them away at the end. And we had three or four different stages and then we put the times, first come, first serve. If you want to talk about Whatever you're working on, write it on the board. And what happens is you're not putting one person in charge of scheduling. If you've ever done scheduling for 300 academics and everybody has, my plane leaves at three and I need to talk at two and oh, I'm, you know, and oh, I don't want to talk next to the <laughs> first come, first serve. And if you're talking about math on, say, you know, room two at 3.30, well, maybe the next guy that's talking about math won't want to do it at the same time, but maybe right after yours to right, so you get this natural emergence of not only topics, but like clumped together. So like there's a bunch of math topics happening at the end of this, you know, or a bunch of computer science over here or biology in this room. And they, it organically happens and no one's in charge of it. And it works really well. Were there any venue costs? Yeah, uh, we rented like a YMCA, like a gym. And, and who pays for that? We passed the hat. We had a guy walking around. We'd had a, we had a total, because like as the event happens, you're incurring extra spe- you know, expenses. Like, hey, we don't have any, we have nothing but water. We need to get some like Cokes. Who wants to run to Costco and go grab a, a truck full of Cokes? Okay, well, how much was it? You know, they run off, they'll put on their credit card, come back and say, okay, guys, here's the receipt. It was like, you know, $200. Are you informing the attendees? Yeah, of, we would have a, we'd, we'd write it up. We're $200 in the hole and people would just put 10 bucks wow, in. Wow, that's amazing. In cash. And we would just raise it that way. And at the end, we actually had extra money, which just meant more booze that night. <laughs> that's amazing. Okay, so Bill and Ted, and now Bill, to this day, we're in 2023, there are still these Bill things going on? Yeah. Uh, mainly internationally, uh, 2000, whenever the, uh, I think 2010, 2011, the, the Arab Spring, mm-hmm. uh, they really picked up on it in, um, in Tunisia. The Tunisia group is extremely, we've, we've done it in Europe, in India, really the, the Arab countries in Africa were, were the ones that really picked it up. Wow. And they would self-organize. It was a bunch of kids that didn't have a whole lot of, a whole lot going on over there. I mean, you've got sand and goats. That's a lot of times that's, their future looks pretty bleak in those countries. And they said, "Wait a minute, we can, we can do something as big as TED, and we don't need permission." They would they they emailed us first and said, "You know, we need to apply." And I said, "There's no application, man. Just do it. Just try to it's B I L and kind of keep it blue. Try to match the same. We don't have any brand guidelines. We, yeah. Just this is all about spreading ideas. And so get together. We've had there was a, a bill done in Afghanistan with Todd Huffman, with uh, eight kids sitting around a campfire one night. That was a bill. That's so we've had over 300 all around the world. There's very there's there's a, an idea of what a bill is, but you can riff on it however you want. Now so the cool thing is, is after the first year of Bill, that next summer Ted came out with TEDx. They responded, uh, and I went, oh cool, an olive branch. And so yeah. somebody you know, Twitter and I was getting email. Hey Ted's Ted's extending an olive branch. They're going to let you do a TEDx thing. So I went to the website, downloaded the PDF, downloading, downloading, a big PDF, downloading, downloading, 80 pages. To, to apply, to organize, to share ideas. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And so I was like, yeah, that's not, no, that, that's not ideas worth spreading. That's, that's, and it's, okay. One last piece. So TED, sort of this TEDx thing, right? Where, where any, any university or, or group or city could do a TEDx. Mm-hmm. It's not TED, it's TEDx. So it's like a less, it's a sanctioned, but, but less. But you still have 
a little bit of the brand slash exclusivity. Yeah, but you got to get like insurance and you got to like have a, 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 right. a formal board. But that's why somebody would want to do the TEDx. And you have to assemble a board to accept people to share their ideas. You have a clearinghouse of ideas. So a local TEDx needs a, like a local board? Oh, the whole thing. The, 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 to do it, there's a whole structure there. And I went, yeah, that's not what we're doing. Bill is not about that. And what's cool is these boards, people would apply to, to, to talk. Well, the rejects, right, the people who got rejected from speaking at a TEDx, right, like TEDx Albuquerque, they would have 30 slots and 50 people. So there would be 20 people that didn't get to speak because mm. the board didn't think their ideas were worth it, right? You've got some yeah. clearinghouse, which is absolute BS in my opinion. So we created something called Billy, right, TEDx, Billy. Bill Y. What we would do is we would go across the street at, at different TEDx's. <laughs> the rejects that were that were spurned from this event would go get go to a pub and day drink, share their ideas anyway, and shit post on Twitter with the TEDx with the TEDx Albuquerque or whatever you know. Yeah. And basically, we just we would basically toss bombs into the into the Twitter stream, saying like. So so Cody, it's funny when I listen to you. We've gone through the blockchain. We've talked about Bitcoin in terms of a, a currency. Uh, we've talked about Ethereum, obviously. We've talked about um, NFTs, yeah. and we've talked about uh, using the hashtag with Twitter. We've talked about the Bill and the Ted, and it, it really dawned on me after probably listening to your story multiple times because I've, I've heard you talk about some of these things in various events and venues and just interesting conversations. And I realized what you're really about yeah. is decentralization. Because all these things are decentralizing. So TED, let's mm -hmm. give them as an example. Ideas worth spreading. We've all enjoyed a lot of great TED Talks. But when you look at the process of who can give the talk, where they can give it, how they can give it, all these things, there's a centralization of power or power brokers uh, who decide that. Right. When you talk about currency, there's a centralization of who's printing the money, how much they're printing, all these sorts of things. Um, when we're talking about, and then what the blockchain does, or even what you did with hashtags, you're allowing any user to come along and create any topic using uh, new technology to do it. So all these things, you've, you've decentralized the power brokers and given sort of power to the people in a sense. Yeah, and it's really self-serving a lot of times because I just, I hate being told what to do. <clears throat> You can ask me nicely and I'll do whatever you need, but don't tell me. Yeah, my, yeah. my mom and dad know this very well. Um, and my business partners, they all, you know. Um, and I just, I really don't like having limits put on, on on me personally. And so I look for ways to like, I'm sure I'm sure there's other people like that out there. Um, you know, we'll just do it anyway. Speaking of limits, you don't like limits being put on you, including the limits of where you live. Oh, Mexico City. Yeah. So, you, so three, four years ago now, you moved yeah, four, to Mexico City. Yeah. Let me let me just start before we go to four years ago. Yeah. Um, what was your travel experience like, or even did you live anywhere else in the world and and, and throughout your life uh, leading up to that point? No, up until Mexico, I only lived in two countries: Texas and the United States. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, you know, I was I never felt like I was really happy in the United States. Like there was something, and I didn't. You don't really realize it until you know. Until you until you experience something else, and in 2006, a buddy of mine and I drove down to a little town called Guanajuato, Mexico. It took me like two days. I got there, and I'm, I now I'm like deep in the heart of Mexico. I mean, we're talking not on the beach. We're not in Cancun at a resort. 
We're in a little town in the mountains. In the By the way, I only heard of Guanajuato. Uh, a friend of mine recently went there awesome. and spent a couple weeks, made a YouTube video about it and told me this is a really great place and it's so cool. And I was just at, telling you yesterday, yeah. have you ever heard of Guanajuato? So yeah. I didn't even know that you uh, spent some time yeah, there. Yeah, I spent a lot of time there. I've got a second house there, a big, like a little two-bedroom or a little Yeah, that's two cool. Person. I'm going to have to go to this Guanajuato, Mexico sometime. Yeah, I'd love to show you around. Um yeah, I found it took me like two days, and I was like, no, 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 I get it. I, I don't speak the language here, but I see the way people work. And I grew up on the King Ranch in South Texas, which was like 98% Latin, Mexican-American, Mexican, whatever so you, you want. some exposure to the Hispanic culture. Yeah, but I'm, 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 my, if you, yeah. My, I'm pink. I'm not white. Hablas Espanol. Right, right. No, very little at the time. I speak more now. I'm not fluent, but I'm much better than I was. You get by. Yeah. Um, I get myself in and out of trouble. That's what's, That's the important <laughs> part. But I went down there and it took me like two days to like really understand. And I was like, no, 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 you don't have to explain it to me. I totally get how this culture works. People were happy to see each other. I lived in Dallas and I lived in the same building for five years downtown. I didn't know any of my neighbors. No one talked. No one, it, there was no community. It was all, everybody would scurry to their homes and lock their doors. And it was like, why don't I know my neighbor? I mean, I can hear what they're doing in their bedroom at night. You know, like what, like I don't even know their names. And so this was a I missed that about about South Texas we had I knew all my neighbors we didn't lock our doors it was like this this cohesion you get to Mexico I know all my neighbors all my neighbors know me they hear music and they can smell me cooking they come knocking on the door saying hey man cut me in and come on in brother and that's that's what I um, what I what I really enjoyed and and also Mexico is a, a land of weak institutions which I really enjoy it, yeah it goes to the decentralization again <laughs> or just the self-reliance yeah that, instead of like Everything being on rules and lockdown and all those things that you have in America, you don't have that in Mexico. So, you know, that's interesting. Day, what, in the day-to-day -day life. So yeah. when you're in King Ranch, Texas, a much more rural area? About 825,000 acres, you tell me. <laughs> yeah. And then you went, and did you say you lived in Dallas? Where lived in Dallas. Yeah. So why do you think in a lot of American cities and communities that we don't get to know our neighbors? What, what, do, you, do you have any thoughts well, on that? Uh, I do. And I want to preface this with great caution because um, I don't want this to be taken the wrong way. But I really, and I'm going out on a limb here, um, <laughs> it's a subject that I don't really feel all that comfortable talking about publicly. But I'll, I'll, I'll get into it. It's, there's, a very, there's a very few number of people in society that can, that can handle diversity. Mm. And, you know, I can respect, I'm a libertarian you know, little L libertarian. And um, I, I can respect other people's differences, right? And, you know, but when you get into a culture that has, and I'm just going to use some random numbers here, but like, you know, 20% Christian, 20% Muslim, 20% Jewish, 20% atheist, 20% Hindu. How do you get everybody to, to, to agree? Now, I think, it's, I think it's arrogant to think that, oh, no, we can all live together and everybody will live in harmony. Yes, some of us can. But the average person says, no, 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 I don't, I don't agree with that, and I can't accept your ways. And I think that that multiculturalism starts to, to break apart. And now I know, I want to reiterate, some of us can do that, and we can have this nice, lovely, but yeah. like when it goes to the voting booth, how do you get five different groups to vote on the same thing? It, 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 it starts to, you get this divisiveness in society, and I, I think you see that here in America now. So, does that not exist in Mexico City? Well, 85% you know Catholic, or 80% is Catholic, and it's not as contentious. Everybody, or, or if you do have a difference, you just sort of let it slide. You don't bring it to the front because that just pisses people off. And 
life's too short to be unhappy, so why are you going to bring it up? So you're more the outsider coming into the Mexican mm. culture. Is that yeah. a little bit? Yeah, okay, great. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because you could call me out and say, well, aren't you a, a you know a pink gringo coming into Mexico? I said, yes, but I'm also willing to assimilate and go by. I don't complain about Mexican uh, something. So you're willing to assimilate to the broader dominant culture absolutely and they don't have as much diversity as say in the united states correct so there there's not as much of a problems within their culture they have a shared culture more than anything else would that yeah. be and they're and they're welcoming to they're they're interested in outside cultures coming in but i don't come in saying well i'm going to change it to be more like what i want i'm like no i'm here for the ride i'm here with you guys I'll, I'll fall in line so why mexico city why out of all the places on the planet you chose mexico city a number of reasons. Um, I really like the Latin life. I like the the priorities. They they prioritize happiness, parties. You know, um, it's it's just it's a very lively culture. Um, it's it's south of Texas, and my my business is based in the United States, and most of my network. So time zone wise, it works really well. And Mexico City is a, in my opinion, is a top five city in the world. Yeah. Not just by population, not by some metrics that economics or whatever, but just from a from a um, from a cultural and rich place to live, it's up there with New York, London, Tokyo, Mexico. It is State. one of the largest cities in the world. Twenty-four million, right? Yeah, Maybe, twenty-four million. Some people might even classify it as the largest or one of the top three or four largest. I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, I went to Mexico City for the first time, only time, uh, twenty nineteen, and I remember when I was when the plane was descending. Yeah. And I had I literally videoed the whole thing like two or three minutes. Of just this massive city, yeah, like amazingly massive. And I've been to Beijing and Shanghai, and those are massive cities yeah. too. Um, and that was maybe the closest I could see to those. Um, but actually, in some ways, it may be more spread out than uh, it than is. Beijing. They don't they, well because of the earthquakes. They don't really typically build more than three or four stories tall, and most of it's concrete. I mean, it's it, it, make no mistake. There's not a whole lot of um, even distribution of wealth in that country, right? And so you do kind of get rolling hills of sort of, not suburbia, because it's not quite suburbia, but it's just walkable streets, you know. it's. I found Mexico City a really amazing as well. Again, it was only there four or five days, but... Um, the food. It felt... <laughs> first of all, the food was great. Yeah. Got to give a shout out to my friend Joe Lindsley, who organized a trip for about a dozen of us back then. And, you know, he got to know a lot of different chefs and a lot of little boutique restaurants. And we had such amazing yeah. uh, food experiences yeah. there. Kind of unexpected because you think of Mexico, you think of like Taco Bell, right? You think of like, right? I mean, I mean, I'm telling you, the average American thinks of no, you know, tacos and uh, no, it goes like that. Those guys know how to cook, and it's it's uh, there's this uh, spirit of the of Mexico, and I'm not Mexican, so any Mexicans out there that are listening, you know, um, this is just my take, but it's it, it those that group of people have a a thirst for life, and uh, and they don't fear death. It's this really weird. It's like when, when you're a chef in Mexico, it's like you give it everything. You don't be conservative. Be creative. Go out there. Express yourself in the art. Look at, look at Mexican art. It's full of colors. It's vibrant. It's violent. It's, got, it's in your face. It's, it's, it's lively. And that is the license that I think living in a very, very large city gives you. Yeah. For instance, you're a chef in Chicago and you open up your restaurant. People in Chicago are always looking over their shoulder at New York. What does New York think? Do you think New York gives two cents about what LA or it's like no we're New York Mexico City has that same so why did you move to New York City 
Uh, it's not my not my place. <laughs> not my place. Not at all. I'm from I'm from South Texas, man. South yeah. Texas boys don't belong in the Northeast. So it's interesting. So yeah, Mexico City, really amazing place. Um, yeah. So the other thing I want to ask you because I've had some people say to me when I bring up Mexico or Mexico City. What do you think they, they mentioned? Is it safe? Is it safe? Every single time. Is it safe? What do you what have you found? Uh, I had way more problems in downtown Dallas with with crime, with lifestyle, with with um, quality of life issues ranging from from drug use, not personal drug use, but public drug use to, um, you know, the homeless to the the, the, the stresses of, of, of that and I, I have not found that in Mexico City now granted I, ha- I don't put myself in situations where I'm by myself wearing a Rolex standing on the corner of a bad neighborhood right so there's plenty of that and, and there's plenty of, of, of bad people there but it's it's easy to avoid if you know what you're doing usually when we hear about Mexico and the United States it's usually two things it's our border our very porous border right now a lot of border issues yeah um, a lot of migrants coming a al- What's interesting is not I Mexicans, think, right? It used to be Mexicans, yeah. And now but, it's 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 actually going. And negative. that's partially, I think, because the economy in Mexico has improved a lot over yeah. the number of years. The amount of jobs coming into Mexico. It's right one now of the largest massive. economies in the world. Number nine. Now. Yeah, number nine. Yeah, yeah, and, which is close to the United States. Is it, what are we? Are we number one? one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is we hear about you know murders, gangs, drugs. Yeah, that's all targeted though. If, if I mean. Like you look at the homicide rate in Mexico, it's 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 massive. It's it's super high, way higher than the United States. Mm. But that's mainly narco on narco violence. They're not. Well, you don't want to be caught in the crossfire. Sure, but they're not doing that in in, in restaurants that I go. To. I mean, it's like that's there's like gang territory. So like there's a Talpan, which is a the where the Colombians have come in and taken over a whole chunk of Mexico City. Yeah, I don't go to that part of town. I know that. I don't go hang out there. I don't I don't stand on ceremony and go. Well, I have every right to go down there because it's a free country and I should be able to, like, no, I'm going to go down and get shot if I do. So you stay out of those parts of town, just like you would in Chicago. You wouldn't go into South Chicago and, you know, get shot. If you're a tourist and no problem. And, you, and you want to go to Mexico City, what what's to say you don't end up in one of those wrong areas? Doing a little bit of research. And, I mean, you know what a bad part of town looks like. You know what it what that looks like. You know... Um, you know, but like the museums, like the part of town that I live in are great. I walk, I walk all over the place at 10, 11 PM at night. I've never had a single issue. Yeah. Okay. It's just, it's, just, it's, it's, no, it's, I agree with you. I just wanted to get your answer for the, for the people listening and watching. Yeah. And there's um, like, you know, Michoacan and, and, um, Sinaloa were the, were the two, you know, most violent, um, uh, uh narco states are. And kind of stay around, or if you go there, which is that I'll, part of Mexico City? No, no, those are those are different states in the country. Yeah, and if you go there, just kind of be a little more on alert. We probably wouldn't want to go there. <laughs> well, I've been there several times. Okay. Great just, beaches and great people, great food. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, um, Cody, you know this is the Agents of Innovation podcast, and we've gone through your, I, you know so many different ways you've been innovative, but I always, you know, I think when people meet people who are either successful or innovative or they're doing some really interesting things. Um, I, I like to help people understand the journey of how people got there. So one of the questions I like to ask is, what was your first job in life? I was actually a lifeguard at Schlitterbahn. You were a lifeguard where? My, my, at Schlitterbahn, it's a, a water park in uh, New Braunfels, Texas. That was my very first job for like two and a half months in the middle of summer in Texas. So how old were you? 
16. 16. Actually, my first day of work was when I got my car at 16, my license at 16. And my mom took me down to get my actual license and I drove to work that day. Wow. Uh, I did that for about two and a half months and realized I did not want to stand in the sun all day. Um, so Miami that, Beach isn't going to suit you? No, I need mountains, man. I need <laughs> I need I need seventy five degree weather, um, which is what Mexico gives me year round. Uh, Mexico City is at like seven thousand feet. Is it is it similar to the climate of Guatemala, or yeah. does it have yeah. warmer times up here? Uh, you, there's a little bit of like in May it gets a little warm, but then the rainy season comes and cools everything down. We we bounce around from like seventy five degrees to fifty five year round in Mexico City. Yeah, it's like Southern California without all the taxes. <laughs> well. Um, you know, actually, let's go back for a second there and talk about an expat, you know, somebody who yeah. lives outside the country in another country. And um, what is that like? Uh, I mean, so you talk about, so do you, you still have your U.S. citizenship? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And do you still pay taxes to the U.S.? So uh, when you live outside there's a foreign earned income credit mm -hmm. i believe up to like hundred and twelve thousand dollars a year i would challenge you to spend hundred twelve thousand dollars a year in mexico city like you can so live is on the, is the foreign earned income <clears throat> income earned or expenditures uh it's what it's up and yeah so income based on income so you would challenge me to make hundred and twelve thousand? No, no, no. Spend that money. Like I don't, I don't eclipse that. So I would only get taxed on anything above one hundred twelve thousand. Everything that else, you spend, right? So everything, everything that I, I earn above that goes. I don't. It's not income for me. It's it's parked into a, a company, so I don't get taxed on the income. Okay. <clears throat> um, so that's. I mean, I'll get I'll get taxed on it eventually, but I'm I'm staving that off for now. Eventually, what does that mean? Well, in the future, whenever I decide to pull money out of the company. Oh, I see. So the money is because it's going right into the company. Right. Yeah. And so I, only, I only take out what I need. Yeah. So you're living the rich dad, poor dad life. <laughs> yeah. Just deferring it all. Yeah. Right. Um, okay, great. Um, and so um, that's really interesting. So so the, the first thing I want to ask you was about the first job. So you were a lifeguard at yeah. 16. Two, how, how long were you a lifeguard? <clears throat> For two and a half like months? Two and a half months. And then I was like, yeah, I'm done with the sweating and the sunscreen and the outdoor work. I'm going to go get a desk job. So okay. I worked for a publishing company for like the next two years in high school, running a network. So how did you get into all of this technological space? My dad brought home a computer when I was nine years old, <clears throat> and we were living on the ranch, and you can only go out and shoot rabbits and turtles so long before that becomes old hat. And so I um, got this computer, and I realized that if I hit this button, it would come up there. And if I read the manual and I hit these buttons in this order, that would happen. And I went, oh, this is pretty cool. And I could... And you were nine? Nine or ten years old, yeah. What computer did he bring home? It was an IBM 286. It was about this big. Yeah, wow. It was a big old green my, screen. My first experience with a computer that I can remember was in elementary school. Yeah. Must have been third, fourth grade. I don't Apple know. Apple IIe. It was like the Apple in the computer lab, mm -hmm. and, and they had the, the little... Oh, actually, we had the floppy disk. Yeah, yeah, and you'd take it... Yeah, and so you would turn the computer off, put a new one in, and then would boot up and run the application. And it's amazing how... <coughs> fast technology has moved in that time in my life yeah that you know i try to explain to these kids that are 20 years old now you know who grew up with a smartphone in their hand and every year that smartphone is getting faster more technology we're able to do podcasts from cigar lounges uh so it's 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 really amazing save it in the cloud all these what? all these sorts of things and this comes full circle back to bitcoin so you have what's called the s curve of, of innovation so you have a new concept. It's really hard to time breakthroughs. Like timing, like knowing when a breakthrough is going to happen is incredibly difficult. You can know you're getting close because the rest, the things are coming together, the recipe is, is coming together, but you don't know when it's gonna actually happen. Take for instance, curing cancer. 
Like we're putting a lot of research towards it. <clears throat> is it going to happen this year? Is it going to happen next year? Or in 10 years from now? We really don't know. We know we're getting close, but there's no indicator that's going to happen on this date. Once that happens, like the Wright brothers flying, a lot of, lot of trying, but we didn't know when exactly. Once it did, now you have like, okay, aha. You have that aha moment. And if you look at what we did with, with just airplanes, we use the, the, the um, uh, with airfoils and stuff. Um, <clears throat> Wright brothers flew. 20 years later, we're flying um, across the across the Atlantic. 20 years later, we break the sound barrier. 20 years later, we're on the moon. Yeah. Right? Crazy. So we went, I mean, and that's like in 60 years, we went from nothing, like just a dream of flying, to being on the freaking moon. So what happens is, and for the first few years after the Wright brothers, airplanes got incrementally better, very, very little. But then they hit this point where we went, aha, okay, we know how airfoils work. We now have the... We've studied enough, and now we can really innovate on it. Well, since the 1970s, you know, commercial planes have not changed that much. Look at a plane. Look at an old, you know, an old Boeing from the 70s, and one now. It's like, yeah, they've increased they've got Wi-Fi and stuff like that in them, but the plane hasn't really changed that much. The, the the efficiencies have only been incremental. So you have that S curve. You have that time from like say the 1920s and 30s all the way up until the 70s where that happened. Now, same thing can be said for the internet. Right, so in, in 1992 when I got online, JPEGs would load up like this. Oh man! Right, you sit there and, and wait. We'd be on the uh, we'd be on the phone lines. Right. Now we're streaming, you know, Game of Thrones in 4K from our cars on our cell phones. Right, how far we've come. And so you look at these technologies and you see them really early. And you're like, well, that's who wants to do that? Well, some of us say if we can do that, we can do a lot better in the future. And that's where blockchain's coming in. So we see, we've, you know, you find these early technologies and you go, aha, like. The breakthrough already happened. Now we just need to chart it out across that S curve, and we're almost to the point where these these blockchains are really going to take off. And it takes time. You know, it's funny when we talk about the internet, and I just mentioned the first days of the internet. Hard for anybody who's 20 years old to understand. <laughs> yeah. But we, you know, my first experience with the internet. I remember I was in middle school. I was at a friend's house, and he was like, you know, I'm a grew up watching college football sure, same. and you know the games are played on Saturday right. and on Monday morning in the paper mm -hmm. you would get the AP top 25 right? yeah. it would be updated yeah. in the paper and it was Sunday and my friend says hey let's go over to the computer and see what the new top 25 rankings are right and I looked at them and I said what are you talking about we those don't come out till Monday they're decided on Sunday it just takes the printers to yeah, to yeah. get you the paper, and he goes, no, 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 we can look. And I remember we we he he had Prodigy, yeah, and which doesn't even exist, right? No, uh, no, they they got, they got consumed by another yeah. Conglomerate so uh, that even like predates like AOL and, and everything, and Computer. so he looked it up, and boom, there was the new top twenty five, and I think my mind was blown at you know fourteen years old or whatever I was, and I was like, how is this possible? Yeah, right. It and, solved the communications problem. Yeah, but. With that said, over the next number of five, six, seven years, whatever, we were getting on the internet with this beep, exactly, and it would take forever to get on, and then mom would pick up the phone and yeah, reconnect. somebody in the house picks up the phone, the internet's down, right. you're you're in your little AOL chat, you know, whatever, and you can't and you can't um, continue using the internet, and then really we weren't really even using it for much. We were looking up sports scores, and maybe we were chatting on AOL Instant Messenger at the best and that was kind of cool for the time but the amount of things that are done and I think about when you were talking you know so we no, no, no longer need the phone line but then we went to the ethernet cord we no longer need that for the most part I mean you kind of need a router somewhere in the building sure. to, to connect but I, I just love the with the phones that you could be anywhere 
and I think about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, uh-huh. where Mikey was, you know, floating in the in the, you know, it, whatever the, the the technology was being sent in this in space that you couldn't even see, and then boom, it was on this TV over here. Like you're like, whoa, right? And so that's kind of what we're doing now all the time, and we're not really that blown away about it because we're just so comfortable with this is how it is, right? You know, and if the internet goes down, we're all we're all mad. Yeah. And, and yeah. now, have you ever tried using your computer without internet? There's not much to do. On yeah, there's anymore. not much to do. I mean, the whole point of the computers is that they can talk to each other and connect, but you don't even need a necessarily landline anymore. Everything you go in a coffee shop, what's your Wi-Fi? If they don't have Wi-Fi, you're like, are you, are you a what, real coffee shop? Yeah. Why are Why am I even here? You know. Yeah. But uh, now you have 4G on your phone, you can tether or use Starlink from a boat in the right. middle of the Pacific. I've done that I mean, too, like, right? Geez, we're, we're like, we've connected, like the whole thing is, is connected. Yeah, and so yeah, Starlink, now we're launching satellites <clears throat> into space every day. Um, I mean, I remember I was living in Orlando at the time, uh, you know, a few years ago, and from my balcony in my Baldwin Park neighborhood, I could see every time a rocket was going off. Sometimes I'd be sitting out there smoking cigars. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, I'm, I remember one time, five years ago, yeah. I'm sitting there with a friend on my balcony smoking a cigar. It's 8 what o'clock, 9 o'clock at night. And we see this orange glow in this. I said, what the hell is that? And I was like, oh. That's a Falcon 9. Look up. That's a rocket going yeah. off. And then if you start to, actually, you can go on, you know, either SpaceX or NASA, whatever. You could look, go FAA, on their website. Yeah. And you could, what is the purpose of today's mission? And I remember looking up one day and it was like, Oh, they're launching a Starlink um, satellite into space to provide internet service to the people of Bangladesh. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Like, right from Florida here in Kennedy yeah. Space Center, we're launching something that all of a sudden the people in Bangladesh are all going to have internet from that satellite. Yeah. And and Elon is now putting up, I think they're doing like 65 or 70, don't quote me on it, but about 70% of all um, mass being put into space is being done by SpaceX. That's the, that is the... Um, you know, look what privatized space, you know, once we've privatized, I mean, that's a huge market. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing, you know, the, the, the dollar per kilo into space now is just, it's dropped so much that you yeah. can put anything up there. By the way, you mentioned the Wright I, brothers. I loved you mentioning them because I'm a big fan. <laughs> Everybody should be a big fan. They might have been the big, one of the biggest game changers in the world. Absolutely. But a great book anybody uh, should read is called uh, The Wright Brothers by David McCullough. Uh, really, one of the things I really loved about it is just how they went out there and they just iterated. They just went you know, over and over again with new experiments. They were doing it totally off the grid on their own dime. They had a bicycle shop. Yeah. And they actually, they were the ones that said, people forget in the late 1800s, there were people, there was a race to fly. Mm-hmm. People were trying to figure out, they were, people were becoming very obsessed about aeronautics and flight. But people had all sorts of ideas of how we were going to fly. Well, Da Vinci had the uh, spiral. Yeah. And the Wright brothers, they were studying aeronautics. They had a li- They were fortunate to have a, a library in their own home. Their father was like a preacher, and he just had all these books. And one of the brothers was kind of a recluse for a few years and just was devouring books like crazy. And they came to the conclusion that birds have wings, and maybe the thing that's going to take us into flight needs wings. Wings, yeah. And... Um, it, yeah. I literally sometimes think about that when I'm sitting on a plane. Yeah. And uh, we we take for granted, especially how many flights you and I have taken. Yeah. We take for granted that this massive contraption gets us into the air and goes at five or 600 miles per hour. Yeah. And we have Wi-Fi on yeah. it now. And when the Wi-Fi doesn't work, we're like, damn it. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we take a lot of things for granted. But I'm thinking, you know, just 120 years ago, these guys were just trying to get off the ground. And I look at that wing and go... 
we're still got those wings you know that's how we're primarily getting uh getting into the air mm -hmm. so uh really fascinating they learned by doing and um there's you know cody i just wrote this book here i have to plug it again the american <laughs> dream is a terrible thing to waste uh be sure be sure to get it um but i outlined 10 common characteristics of entrepreneurs uh, mostly that I've learned on this podcast, sitting down with your your 125 now, I think, uh, uh, episode, and I one of a couple of the common characteristics you embody, um, but one of the things uh, that you've 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 referenced here is just people who uh, learn by doing, mm -hmm. and you know, First like principles. I yeah, like I tell people is. You know, no matter whether you went to college or what kind of formal education you have, even the students that I teach at UFM that are there at a university, yeah. I say, you know, when you graduate here, your uh, your education does not stop. It needs to continue. Uh, con it needs to be continuing, whether it's reading books, whether it's, it's reading your, the Wall Street Journal. It's on Journal, you. It's on whatever. you. But a lot of things we learn in life, we learn through the process of doing. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, you know, you didn't need higher education mm -hmm. to do all the incredible innovative things you're doing. Maybe maybe controversial to say this, but um, maybe actually higher education wouldn't have produced such an innovative person. Maybe maybe uh, actually because you didn't go, you, you had to find other ways. But I want to take the point where you were nine years old and you started on the computer and you got into all these, where, where did technology or your fascination with, you know, block, you know, being part of the blockchain, all these things, I mean, that just didn't come from anywhere. What was your kind of uh, process of getting there? Just natural curiosity. <clears throat> I think by the way <clears throat> one of the other top 10 characteristics be curious yeah um, <clears throat> you know being online in 1991-92 any question I had could be answered immediately <clears throat> I didn't have to wait to go to the library do a decimal system find a book you know go through it I could literally just ask the question to Alta Vista back in the day uh, and then now Google and you can just get this, this feedback loop of information so you can connect the dots a lot quicker and a lot faster um, I think curiosity was my number one drive for that. And, you know, I've got really great parents. They, um, they always, my mom always said that I just wanted my kids to be happy. So, you know, my, my parents kind of encouraged all three of us to, to go out and, <clears throat> and do what felt right. Um, you know, as long as it was good, you know, don't be a drug dealer. Don't be a, don't, don't, don't steal. But, um, you know, whatever, whatever drives you, whatever's kind of natural, just follow that path. Let me ask you something though, because I think most parents want their kids to be happy but um, they define happiness they def a lot of them they define happiness mm -hmm. so your parents gave you maybe a sense of freedom yeah absolutely absolutely to do to do what as long as it was you know and if right. I, if I mean I, not the freedom to do stupid things or do do within reason yeah but it, like, wrong you things. know and if I wanted to be if I was if I had a passion for baking pies and I wanted to be a pie baker for the rest of my my, if it made me happy, my parents said, yeah, we'll, we'll get you the ingredients to make pies and, and, and follow your dreams. You know, they didn't say, we want you to be a lawyer and a doctor and you got to go to school and you got to, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that. It was let the kids do, and everybody's different. My parents realized that. So all three of us had their very different um, parenting based on our, our own individual traits. So I wrote this book with the title, The American Dream is a Terrible Thing to Waste. Mm -hmm. um, and the way I kind of look at it is what the American dream is, is is really the freedom to pursue what you would like. It's kind of that p third part of the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, yeah. right? Um, so you're no longer living in the United States. Is the American dream to you dead, or is, is it being lived out in a different way for you? I don't even know how to answer that, honestly. I just follow my own, my own path, and 
I'm not real concerned about the the greater, you know, everybody else. Yeah. Okay. So, but for you, you're living your own path. You're living your dream. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I've never been happier in my life. I, I feel like my I've always been, you know, I've been I've been blessed in some ways to have this life, but you know, I also chose it and I was also afforded the, the ability to do that. I just came from, I was in Europe for three months and I'm walking around talking to people and, you know, doing just coffee shop banter and on the train or on the bus and that kind of thing. And, um, I would see a, a, a gap in the market, right? I would see like, well, it seems like somebody should be able to roll out a product to fix that. Why haven't y'all done that? And they're like, yeah, we don't think like that. Mm-hmm. We don't really have that. Like you, like you Americans always, you know, blanket statement, but um, God, you guys just see an opportunity and you just go after it. I was like, why wouldn't you? And I didn't realize until this trip really of, of talking to people just how, how that is. I mean, any conversation you have at a, at a cigar lounge with a random person, they're looking for an opportunity. And, and, and I think that the American dream, uh, when I say America, I mean... The, it's the, more of, it's kind of a broader term. Than yeah, just I hate, to, I hate yeah. to be so rah-rah yeah. around the borders and you know, it's black and white. But it's there's this um, you know entrepreneurial or, or enterprising uh, spirit that the West that the that the Americas have more than everywhere else. But you look at Americans. We came over here and we, we fought off the British and we said no, damn it, we want our own we want our own country and, and we're going to govern ourselves. And that was a huge. It, it's still in the it's still in the water. You can't you can't that never goes away. And and in fact, we've done a really good job um, of protecting that free enterprise. Yeah. Go out there and, and, and go get it, you know, take the bull by the horns and go get it. And there's that and you're, you're cheered, you know, and if you fail, that's not a problem. But like, look at look at the East, like failure is not an option. You do not mm. fail. And imagine living in a society where like the you, you can't take that risk here. It's like, no, man, take all the risk you can. That's where the money's made. That's where the opportunity. That's how you progress is by taking risk. You got to be fearless. Um, Absolutely. And, and that's kind of what I think embodies a lot of these characteristics of the entrepreneurial spirit is the willingness to be bold and courageous and, you know, a little bit risk averse. Um, and I mean, obviously you don't want to jump over a cliff or something, but, um, failure is an option. Failure is an option. That's, you know, so many entrepreneurs have failed at something, maybe, maybe multiple fail things. often, fail fast. Yeah. And, and then you eventually. learn by doing, you learn through failure and you, the, the thing is you learn. That's a good... When you fail, you don't want to do the same thing again, right? That would be stupid. Right. But you you like, okay, this didn't work. How can it work? You know, I always go back to the Thomas Edison quote. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been quoted a lot of different ways, but but generally speaking, you know, he, he had over 10,000 attempts of trying to make the incandescent light bulb. And one of his, you know, um, colleagues or something said to him, you know, we've tried 6,000 times. We've tried 10,000 times. It's not, it's not going to work. And his answer was, no, we've just found 10,000 ways not to do it. Right. Right. So we're not going to try those ways again. So we're going to try something else. And we have light. We have electricity. We have a podcast. Um, we have the, the, the logo in the Agents of Innovation podcast yeah. is the light bulb because it's, it's such an innovative thing. Um, but also the one thing I hear from you, you know, when you're talking about the American dream, and I thought that was really interesting, your experience with some Europeans that you mm-hmm. encountered, they're not... They're not look. They don't have that light bulb of looking for opportunity in a mm-hmm. sense. I compare that to the immigrant experience as well. Yeah, you know, because here in the United States, we see a lot of Americans see a lot of opportunities drying up. We see jobs going overseas. We see AI taking jobs. We see all these things. So it's constantly. It feels like some kind of loss is happening, even though there's so much great innovation happening. Mm-hmm. But 
we have tens of thousands of people every day going across that border right now. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to, you don't see a massive immigration wave to China. Right. You don't see a massive immigration wave to most countries in the world. But the immigrant walks into this country. Sees opportunity. Sees opportunity everywhere. And I go, that's the entrepreneur mind. Yeah. That the entrepreneurial mind is, I see opportunities where you don't. Right. Right. Because they come from a place where they had zero or yeah. very, very little. And they come here and say, I don't have the skills of a Stanford PhD. You know, I may not be educated, but man, I can start a lawn mowing business. And I mean, how many immigrant stories have you heard where they started a, an, you know, a lawn mowing service and now yeah. they've got an empire? And it's like, that can only be done here. But what's also interesting is to separate those people who picked up their stuff and left versus the people it's that a, stayed in their country. It's a natural filter. Right. Yeah, it yeah. is. So I think that's, we've had since, you know, the, what was it, the early 1600s here in the United States, in the, mm-hmm. what was the colonies, yeah. people coming <clears throat> for an opportunity, and that continues with new waves of immigrants every year. So there's actually a, a, a gene... And this this is not this is this is documented. This is research. This is kind of old 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 information. This this they uh, they found this out in around 2010 2012 that um, there's a gene that that is expressed in the brain for risk. So some people when they jaywalk, that's enough risk for the day. I'm good. My heart was racing. Some people jump out of airplanes. What's the difference, yeah. right? Why why do some people are really risk adverse and some people are willing to jump out of airplanes? Like there's a, and some people need more risk. Well, when, the, when the, the colonies were formed, the people that left Western Europe that came over here were the people who, had, who, who were willing to take a higher risk. They arrived in the, in the 13 colonies, like you said. Now, it was filtered again <clears throat> by Manifest Destiny. Mm-hmm. So only the people with even higher risk were willing to trudge across the Native Americans and the, and the, the, the risk across the, the Great Plains into the mountains going to California for the gold rush, mm-hmm. right? So the gold rush was the, was the carrot, right? Now, whether or not the gold rush was actually there and whether it was, you know, it was the promise. It was the idea. And so some people said, I'm going to Or even the Oklahoma land rush, <coughs> right? right? Just to go out there and stake a, a plant in some land. Right in the middle of Native American territory, yeah. right? And so, so naturally, if you look at the, <clears throat> the gene expression, and, you, and this has all been documented, you can go online and read about this, on the West Coast, you have a higher expression than you do even on the East Coast. Mm. But, the, but the America, the American continent, has any higher um, than, than Europe. And so that gene made its way over here. And so now you look at where does most of the innovation happen in the United States? Silicon Valley. Why? It's the land rush. It was that gene that people said, yes, let's go ahead and try to innovate. And so you can actually chart this out with genetics. It's a, it's a wild, wild. And game. now we're sitting here in South Florida where when people are come from <clears throat> everywhere. Right, right. And, and, and that's a network effect. That's a, that's a, a, a spirit of, of, the, of the environment. Yeah. So this has been amazing. Uh, Cody, we've been enjoying some great cigars. You yeah. finished yours. Um, we have been both smoking the same cigar, the, the Monte Cristo Espada Oscura. Mm-hmm. How was your cigar? It's good. Black it was Sword good. was great. Yeah. So how did you get into cigars? You know, I had my first cigar with a, a guy named Brady Creel in Austin, sorry, in, in College Station, Texas. He, he gave me one. It was a Padron 92. And uh, no, no, I'm sorry. It was a uh, Rocky Patel 92. Hmm. And I smoked and I thought, oh, I kind of like that. And I, he told me, don't inhale, you know, be careful with it. And I was like, oh, I really like that. And I would smoke one usually on vacation. Uh, and then when I went to Latin America, it's like every, it's, there's a cigar culture around there. And so I started smoking one a week. And now it's like... A, Is there a cigar culture down there? In Latin America, more so. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, definitely a... It's a. Uh, it's something that, you know, it's still kind of men do it more than women. It's kind of a, a, a men's club type thing where you get together with your guy friends and you... 
But what I like about it is it's the only thing that I've found in life that keeps me in the moment. Well, yeah, I totally agree. I was having a conversation. I haven't looked at my phone. I mean, we're on a podcast. Yeah, we're on a podcast. No, I totally agree. So many times we're, I'm in a cigar lounge with other people actually having real conversations, meeting people, connecting with others. In order to smoke a cigar, it's probably at least about an hour conversation. Yeah. You know, you sit down, you smoke a cigar, maybe longer. And your dominant hand is occupied by mm, the moment. That's you're true. you're not looking at your phone. We're not, we, we can't, yeah. I mean, look, every once in a while you're sitting there, maybe maybe you want to look and check in with something or whatever, but 90% of the time you're not. No. And and that's so different than, than normal time. You're also not just one-on-one looking at a screen like television. Right. Right. Um, being, being forced to You actually it. can have kind of deep conversations that doesn't exist in a lot of places anymore. Um, but maybe we'll get back to that. I think that's why podcasts are growing as well. People like to listen in. and There's a lot of noise going on in our society. We could have some intelligent conversations. Learn about all the great innovators mm-hmm. like yourself um, or whatever other conversations uh, that are having. So, so Cody, um, you just came back from Europe for three from three months in Europe yep. um, and you connected through Miami yep. the gateway to Latin America yeah. and the world yeah. really now um, so it's nice to have you here in South Florida um, are you what what did you miss I'm gonna ask you two two final questions when you're when you're going you're, what have you missed about not being in Mexico City uh-huh. and then generally being that you live primarily in Mexico City and mm-hmm. you, you know now you were traveling the world you were in Europe um, what do you miss about the United States when you're not there? So those two questions. Yeah. So jokingly, I say, what you know, when people ask me, what do you miss most about the United States? I say Chick Fil A. Yeah. That's the, that, yeah. We don't have that down there yet. Um, yeah. For me, when I was in Guatemala for a year, I was like, man, Chick Fil A and public <laughs> subs. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those kind of things. Um, I miss the food in Mexico. I'm a big, big. I love to cook, and so getting access to what I'm used to. I did a lot of cooking in Europe, but um, I really miss being home, my own bed, that kind of thing, and like, and getting back to some sort of routine. You know, seeing the same faces, the people that I know, that kind of... I was by myself the, the, the time, you know, in Europe. And so it was a lot of solo time, not speaking Italian, not speaking French or Portuguese. So, so you know, it's funny. I love Guatemala. Yeah. I've also... I, I feel like I can kind of adapt to where I'm at in a lot of places. I really loved the week I was in Colombia, mm-hmm. the few weeks I was down in Argentina. I'll tell you what, if Argentina wasn't a 10-hour flight, I might move there. Yeah. And, I, and I say sometimes the same thing. Guatemala is right around the corner. It's three hours. And some people ask me, you love it so much. Why don't you move there? And I think, well, you know, I mean, my family is mostly in Florida. Yeah. I also come from a great place, Florida. Um, you also don't want to marry your mistress. <laughs> right? I thought about moving to New Orleans because I loved it so much when I was living in Dallas. I thought about moving there. I thought, you know, if I move there, eventually I'm just going to start complaining about the traffic and the, <laughs> and oh, God, another, another one of these damn parades that they do. You know, I, no, I want that to be special. I want to leave it kind of un- untouched but you've you've been in mexico city for quite a while you're four years pretty yeah. established there yeah yeah and i think a big city like that has enough variety that it never gets old but if i was in a small t- like you know living in antigua i love going to antigua guatemala but if i lived there kind of small uh, it would get old it would be like okay like i've got three you know there's three re- three restaurants there's like you know 50 people that I know and it becomes really small I need a big city to one thing I love about Guatemala <coughs> yeah I lived in Guatemala City it is a big city it's not the level of Mexico City but um, you know when I think about my day to day life I don't do that many things that are uh, uh, variable I mean I guess enough I mean I, I, being that I lived there a year there was enough to be kind of new yeah 
three years, five years, ten years, you know, I don't know if, if uh, something like that would be that variety. Mm-hmm. But the great thing about Guatemala mm-hmm. is it's got so many adventures around the country. Yeah, yeah get out of the cities. You go yeah. to, you know, I can go to Antigua for the weekend. I can go to Lake Atilan if I want to take a short flight up to Tikal. Yeah. Or, and there's so many more things in Guatemala I haven't done yet. What's over that mountain? What's on the other side of that mountain? Yeah, Samuk Champay is over that yeah, mountain for me. Exactly. But I've done several volcano hikes. Yeah. There's more volcanoes to hike. Yeah, yeah. You know, so... Yeah, I feel like in Guatemala, you never run out of adventures. Yeah. I would say the same thing about the United States. I mean, you never, there's so much here. Yeah. People that travel abroad um, that haven't maybe discovered, I mean, the to me, the national parks are incredible here. I tell people, Europeans were asking, you know, oh, I've never been in the United States. Well, you should come. But if you come, you're going to fly into a city and then get the hell out of the city yeah. and drive, especially the western half of the United States. Fly into L.A. or San Francisco hit the national parks, the, the real beauty of America. Uh, someone echoed this back to me. They said, yeah, the, the secret to Europe is the cities. The secret to the United States mm. is, is not the cities. It's the, the natural land. Yeah, but it's, it's kind of hard because when I hear somebody, they've never been in the United States, traditionally people will go to like New York, yeah. maybe LA, DC, and it's like, well, I don't want to tell you not, not to go to those places because they're really, if you've never been, it's, it's really incredible. Sure. But like you said, I agree, like Yosemite, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Yeah. Right. Or the Redwoods, yeah, or Bryce Canyon, or Zion National and I Park. I haven't been to those. Or, 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 or just drive up to Montana and, and get mm-hmm. lost. Yeah, that's where it's at. It's great. All right, so Cody from the internet. Yeah, Cody Marks Bailey. Uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us here at yeah. Strike Cigar Lounge, yeah. one of our favorite places in Boca Raton. On the uh, uh, the episode of the Agents of Innovation podcast, really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks.